This is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. CSIS event from the other day where General Van Riper, General Zinni, appeared along with, it was moderated by Mark Cancia, who you'll hear after that, all right, Robert Work, former Marine, artilleryman, former Deputy Defense Secretary and Dov Zakim, former Under Secretary of Defense Comptroller, non Marine type. All right. And then Zinni and Van Riper. All right. So you're going to hear that in its entirety. Okay. And then you're going to hear Mark Kansian afterwards. First thing I talked to Mark about is I talked to Mark about Russia. Get his thoughts on Russia. And they're interesting. And then get his thoughts on uh, the CSIS event, which um, which pretty much ran true to form. And I'm confused by it, though. And so uh, with the Mensa brothers this week, we're going to look at force design... 2030 the update okay so we'll look at the update and then uh we'll give our thoughts about that and give our thoughts about this so with that said good morning to you the um yeah the united states marine corps band makes this morning official
And uh, this is dedicated to General Zinni's and Ben Riper at no small risk to themselves um, and the incredible legacies they have. Uh, I think they've stood up and um, have become the spokesman for a lot of people in the Marine Corps who do not understand what General Berger has done and others who straight up disagree with what he's done and a lot of people that feel both. I don't understand it, and I disagree. Okay, and they've, um, as I said, and again, at, I mean, they could just sit in retirement. It is the safe thing to do, you know. I mean, to take on the Commodore on the Marine Corps in public. But you know, um, when you listen to their criticism today, and you'll hear it in a, in a few minutes. I will very quickly check the news just to peruse for any major headlines. Um, when you hear their criticism, and I went to dinner last night in San Clemente with Jeff Kenny, uh, Mike Marletto, Mark Toll, you know, and, and we were talking. I said, you know, until somebody can tell me how they're even getting get into a theater in the Pacific, I mean, I don't even want to talk about it. You can't get there, and you can't tell me how you're going to get there, let alone sustain yourself. What are we talking about? <sighs> Fairy dust. So, um, anyway, this is dedicated to Generals Ben Riper and Generals Zinni. Um, God bless them. <laughs> betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. It's funny, you gotta admit. We just have to execute. 
and we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. We don't want to make a mistake to learn. And if you ask me if, if Mattis is a funny guy, I would say yeah, not so much. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago: persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds, and win. You got to win. All right, time to check the weather, the headlines very quickly, and then you're going to hear, in my opinion, some interesting, a couple of very, very, couple hours of very interesting radio. And then the Mensa Brothers will follow that up on Friday. Currently, it is, hold on, let me make sure my shit's right here. I've been, I've been devoting some time to my weather, okay? So I got to make sure I don't fuck this up. All right. Hold on. Currently, it is sunny and 68 in Quantico. How about that? Going to be a nice day. Down the coast in North Carolina, it is already mostly sunny and 78 in uh, at Cherry Point. 29 Palms, sunny and 76. Camp Pendleton, cloudy and 61. Camp Smith in Hawaii, it is dark 75. In Okinawa, it is... <clears throat> Hold on, I know. I'm trying to get a page to update. <clears throat> All right. Currently, in Okinawa, it is dark, cloudy, and 73. Manila, dark, cloudy, 79. They have a new president, in case you don't know. Um... In Darwin, on the northern coast of Australia, it is clear, dark, and 77. It's kind of cold for Darwin. And here in the Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area of Southern California, it is cloudy and 61. Looking for a high today of only 69 degrees. 68 tomorrow. 67 on Friday, 70 on Saturday, and 70 on Sunday. It's a little cooler, but... It's good sleeping weather. All right. To the news we go. Let me shit can Junior Walker here. All right. Um, top headline in Stars and Stripes. U.S. deal with Taliban panicked Afghan military and hastened their collapse, according to a U.S. watchdog this morning. Top story in the Wall Street Journal is U.S. stocks fall on concerns over rising costs. Next headline is Finland and Sweden apply for NATO memberships. Officially applied for them, as in filed the paperwork. Top story in the New York Times is hundreds more Ukrainian fighters surrendered in Maripol, according to the Russians. Uh, a Russian soldier accused of killing a civilian pleads guilty 
in a Ukrainian court. And then the next headline, around Kharkiv, Ukrainians emerged to find lives in ruins. All right, that's uh, in the Washington Post. Top stories are wins in its political news. There was primaries last night. Wins in Pennsylvania and North Carolina show the potency of Trump's false claims. Next headline, Pennsylvania GOP Senate primary still undecided. Here's another breaking story this morning. Homeland Security paused, and that word is in quotes, the newly created disinformation governance board after its leader came under online attack. Yeah. The crazy things you see in the news, right? Uh, the Harry S. Truman Strike Group is back under NATO command for Neptune shield drills. And those drills would be going on if it's a NATO event. The drills are expected to last through the end of May, operating in the MED. So you have that going for you today. And let's see. According to the Polish prime minister, the United States and NATO are in for a long haul conflict with Russia. So that is in the, that is in the news. And this is for Marines, especially Marine aviators. Uh, the Navy last week commissioned the destroyer, the USS Frank E. Peer Peterson Jr., named after General Peterson. So um, congratulations to his family uh, on that. And uh, for those of us who remember General Peterson. Top story in Marine Corps Times is... Lethal and survivable or irrelevant and vulnerable. Marine debate, marine redesign debate rages. And uh, that is an article about the uh, audio that you're about to hear. Top five stories in early bird and then you will hear said audio is are as follows. My goal was no more than 50 minutes of this today. Uh, number one, review finds U.S. troops did not violate the law in a Syria airstrike. I, I, again, I just don't understand as somebody who's coordinated those things. Um, you know, like the one in Kabul. You know, the guy's not in proximity to friendlies. Uh, would you have a bunch of novices running this shit? You see children running around, other people in an urban area. You know there's going to be collateral damage, and you smoke it anyway. Right? I just, I, I, I don't understand. Same thing with this one. 
you know, you know, all these civilians are killed. What are you watching? I mean, what are you doing? I don't understand it. Uh, so the review finds that uh, there was no violation of law. They were just fucked up, right? Oh, well, that's comforting. Uh, successful tests could rally Air Force hypersonic program. Congratulations to the Air Force. Uh, U.S. Army Alaska identifies two soldiers killed in chaotic Glen Highway crash. Uh, UFOs pose a real danger, the Department of Defense says, but aliens aren't to blame more than likely. So what is the answer to those questions? Um, new military suicide prevention study group to begin work this summer. Hello, I'd like to participate. I got an opinion. Uh, overseas headlines. Uh, Ukrainian war. Ukraine relinquishes Maripol. Big headline, G7 to unveil Ukraine aid plan to help offset losses from the Russian invasion. And that's it. So uh, with that done and out of the way, what you're going to hear today um, here in this next uh, segment is Mark Cancion put together and moderated a forum, and it included uh, the aforementioned people. I'm not going to review them. Uh, Misser's work, Zinni, Van Riper, and Zakim, right? And so you will hear that now. And um, so it's about 66 minutes of audio. And then on the backside of that, you're going to hear Mark Kansian. Uh I brought him on to talk about the forum. Did anything surprise you? What are your thoughts about that? Has And, and, and again, let me just tell you, Mark Kansian deserves much credit because he's the first person to, in a very public way, question what General Berger's doing with the Marine Corps. Uh, his article was entitled, Not So Fast, Marine Corps. And I think he probably was the first person to, you know, of note to question this. And so uh, at the end, uh, so we, we discussed it. And then I asked him some questions. Mark, do you have any idea how this thing gets into position? Um, and let's just say for, for the sake of discussion, uh, the Philippines. If you were uh, the newly, uh, newly elected president, boom, what, Bong Bong Marcos? You think he'd get a different name? Whatever. Anyway, so Bong Bong, as he's sitting there with his advisors, he say, look, we're in a position where China needs us and the United States needs us. That's a good position for us, right? And so we need to leverage that and get as much money as we can out of both of those countries. We will not throw in with either one of them. We will court both of them. I mean, is, does that make sense? It makes sense to me. We will be leery of China's manipulation, and we will also be leery of American dominance. And they, what they feel is their historical right to the Philippines. So, um, so if you agree to take American fo forces, you will be punished by the Chinese in the region. Expect that. Same thing applies to Vietnam and everybody else in the region. So you will be hammered economically first. 
and then you will experience, you know, whatever else the Chinese fish, fishing militia does and whatever else their little surrogates do. All of that. So who, who would invite that? So, so again, so I asked Mark at the end, and you, you'll hear him discuss these questions. How do you get these people into position? How do you, and then how do you sustain them? And what are they doing that an American submarine can't do? Or U.S. Army long-range batteries can't do? Hmm. Okay, so uh, with all of that said, and let me get the electronics here situated. Uh, here's part one. Well, this is the CSIS um, uh, event from the other day, uh, moderated by Mark Cancia. And then after this, you're going to hear he and I discuss this after we discuss Russia. The Russia uh, discussion is very interesting, by the way. I know, Mac, you're a big fan of your own work. I know that, trust me. But I'm serious. All right, here you go. Good afternoon. I'm Mark Cancy. I'm a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd like to welcome you all to our event this afternoon, the Marine Corps' Force Design 2030 and Assessment. The event today is part of CSIS's uh, uh, effort to facilitate discussion on key national security issues. As many in the audience know, the current comment on the Marine Corps, General Berger, has instituted a series of major changes in the Marine Corps, focusing it on China, uh, uh, which the department describes as the pacing threat, and employing new operational concepts that focus on distributed operations and long-range precision strike. Many outside the Marine Corps, particularly in the general officer community, are concerned that the Marine Corps will lose its capability for global employment. They also whether, worry about the, um, re, whether the reorganization duplicates capabilities that are already in other services and whether the Marine Corps uh, might be undermining its traditional strength uh, in combined arms operations. With that, I'd like to introduce our panel. We're very fortunate in having a distinguished panel with a broad set of uh, backgrounds and uh, experiences. On my left is the Honorable jo uh, Robert Work, former Deputy Secretary of Defense and currently owner of Teamwork, a company which specializes in national security affairs and the future of warfare. He is also a retired Marine Corps Colonel. Uh, to his left is General Anthony Zinni, who is a former commander of Central Command and currently chairman of, uh, former chairman of the board of the Middle East uh, Institute. To his left, is the Honorable Dov Zakheim, former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller and currently Vice President of the FPRI Board of Trustees and a Senior Advisor here at CSIS. And finally, on the right is Lieutenant General Paul Van Riper, former Commander of the Marine Corps' Combat Development Center and a frequent commentator on national security issues. Our program for today will go as follows. Each one of the panelists will have five to seven minutes to make some opening comments. Then as the moderator, I'll ask some questions of the panelists. And then finally, we will open the floor to uh, questions from the audience. Those questions can come in uh, through the CSIS website. So with that introduction, I'll turn the floor over uh, 
to the uh, Honorable uh, Mr. Work. Thank you, Mark. Good afternoon, everybody, both here and online. Um, you know, I was a big fan when uh, FD 2030 came out. It was published in March of 2020, and it outlined, a, as some people would say, a very bold, and other people would say a reckless vision of the future of the Marine Corps. Uh, but by and large, I was quite supportive of it, and I was surprised that a service chief would make such a bold move. Now, on March 25th uh, of this year, uh, a former highly decorated Marine veteran, uh, Secretary of the Navy, and Virginia Senator Jim Webb uh, wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, which really caught me by surprise. Essentially, it made the following argument, that the changes being made by General Berger had not been well thought out, that uh, he did not have carte blanche to make these changes, that he did not get permission from either the Secretary of the Navy or the Secretary of Defense to make the changes, and that Congress, because of COVID and the turbulence surrounding the election of 2020, was essentially asleep at the switch and uh, approved, approved General Berger's plans without thinking about it. So my first comment I wanted to do is set the record straight and say, look, Title 10 invests in the Commandant of the Marine Corps and all service chiefs the ability to make a POM, a Program Objective Memorandum. And that POM describes how the service chief, the Commandant in this case, wants to expend the resources that are being provided to him or her by the Office of Secretary of Defense and how he wants to organize the Marine Corps. And I'll use he in this case because uh, General Berger is the current Commandant. He briefed it to then Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer, who approved the plan. He briefed it to then Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, who approved the plan. He then briefed Force Design 2030, and I don't know if he personally briefed, briefed it or the ACMAC did, the Assistant Commandant, to what is called the Deputies Management Action Group, which is the place where all of the services come in and say, this is how we want to go forward. Um, I spoke with Deputy Secretary Norquist, who was the Deputy Secretary at the time, and he said, I vividly remember this because the Commandant came in and did not ask for any money to do the plans he was going to do. He said, I'm going to free up, I'm going to divest things, I'm going to free up resources, I'm going to pay for everything I want to do. And the Deputy said, wow, this is, uh, this is different. Normally services come forward and say, I don't have enough money, please give them to me. Um, but he was very impressed. He asked the China Red Team, which is a team in the Department of Defense, to look at the plan, and the China Red Team said, uh, this is a very, very good thing for us to do. Uh, so he recommended it be approved by the Secretary of Defense in the Secretary's program. He did. It was sent to OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, who makes it uh, creates what is called the BESS, uh, the Budget Estimate Submission that sends it to Congress. In essence, once that goes from Office of Management and Budget, it reflects that the President has approved it. It goes to Congress and was approved in the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act and again in 2022. 
So the whole idea that this was some type of a slate of hand is crazy. It literally could not happen. No service chief would be able to do what Secretary Webb described in that article. Um, and if you saw the uh, hearings last week, both the Hask and the Sask broadly support what Commandant Berger is trying to do. So the, fur the, the furor that was going on in the press with all of the retired general officers uh, was shocking to me. I know of nothing like it in Marine Corps history. Uh, and I started to think, how would I explain this to somebody who isn't a Marine? And the way I kind of came down on it is I said, this is a custody battle between the grandparents and the parents of a beloved child. The Marine Corps is the child, the grandparents are the retired general officers, the parent is the commandant, and they have different views on how to raise the child. In a custody fight between, a grand, between grandparents and the parents, the bar for the grandparents is extraordinarily high. They essentially have one of two options. They can argue that the parent is unfit to be a parent, and no one's arguing that. General Berger's record of command and combat is sterling. Or they can say, due to extraordinary circumstances, the parent is threatening the welfare of the child. And that is the tactics that the retired general officers have uh, pursued. Um, and we're going to get into the arguments uh, this afternoon. I would just like to say I have read everything General Berger has written. I've read every single article that I think, I think I've read every single article that has been written by the opponents of the plan. And I have to say that essentially what the opponents are saying is I want an injunction in court, Congress being the court. I would like, like Congress to stop what the commandant is doing until there is some type of an independent review. Um, unstated is who would do this review. Would it be Congress itself? Would it be a congressional commission? Would it be the retired general officers? Uh, that is all. Nothing is talked about that. And uh, essentially what it's saying is that Congress should ignore two years of experimentation, analysis, uh, exercises, analysis, stop what the commandant's doing, uh, and have some type of uh, review uh, with no indication that whoever was going to do the review would know anything more about the future than Commandant Berger. Uh, so I will argue this afternoon, I think uh, the chances of Congress doing that is very small, primarily because they've approved it two times, and there's no doubt that they're going to approve it a third time, in my view, in the Palm 23 discussions. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to stop what the Marine Corps is doing uh, and then go over the plans for another year or six months or however long it would take. So I'm looking forward to the arguments for and against. Uh, what's very interesting about this argument, it's all in the press. You can read everything the Commandant has written about FD 2030 and everything that the opponents have written against it. And you can make your own judgments on uh, whether, you know, which side the argument is on. So I think that's where I'll stop my initial uh, comments. And I look forward to the discussion and questions from the audience. Thank you very much. General Zinni. Well, I'm a grandfather. I have seven grandkids, three kids. Uh, I talk to them every day. And they often seek advice. Uh, 
It's interesting that General Berger decided to get counsel from the aunts and uncles, some retired lieutenant colonels and colonels that he contracted that basically provided him this whatever Force Design 2030 is supposed to be, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, so it was okay for the aunts and uncles, the retired colonels and lieutenant colonels who were under contract to provide the thoughts. Uh, the, his own general officers were not consulted. So how did we, the retired general officers, get into this? You know, is it that we just suddenly decided we didn't like it or heard about it? We had a number of active duty, very senior, all the way down to NCOs come to us and retired members of the Marine Corps, uh, former members of the Marine Corps that were concerned about what they were hearing. And what they were hearing was divestiture decisions being made, tanks, artillery, uh, heavy engineers, bridging, capabilities that are being ripped out of our Marine Corps Expeditionary Forces. I've commanded the Marine Corps Expeditionary Force. I've employed them in, in combat. Now, why did this all come about? Where did it come from? Our first approach to this was to ask General Berger. We met with him. We met with him several times. We met with him over an entire course of seven hours at one time to ask questions to try to understand where this came from, help us understand. We were alarmed by seeing the reduction in combat power that bothered us understanding what the combatant commander requirements were, which in the war plans are for four Marine Expeditionary Forces plus throughout the regional combatant commanders. We were seeing terms like, uh, we're gonna to return to our roots, our naval roots, we never left. You know, it happened because of Goldwater Nichols, which wasn't mentioned in this, that beside Title 10, that made the Marine Corps a full up, paid up service component. And if you read Componency into General Berger's own manual, it said you must be prepared to provide forces not only to the Joint Maritime Force Component Commander, but the Joint Land Component Commander, the Joint Special Operations Component Commander, and the, the Joint Air Component Commander or to function as one of those. That's the role of the Marine Corps. This mission to go back to your roots to be a type command under the, fleet, under the US fleets is something that we left back in the 70s. It's something we can do, it's something we are required to do, but is by no means the principal uh, function of the Marine Corps. We have our, our own structure in Title 10 and it says that there'll be three division wing teams and a reserve division wing team. And when we look at the gutting of the combat power, we have serious concerns about its ability to meet the requirements we have in places like Korea, in the defense of Japan, possibly defense of Taiwan, in European command on the northern flank, and in CENTCOM if Iran started to get adventuresome. That has been the crux of our problem. And in terms of this thing being tested, I've been the deputy of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command. General Van Riper has been the commander. We've talked to General Gray, who created it, former commandant. General Krulak, who updated it and developed the processes. We see that this is nowhere in line with the way the combat development process was meant to be conducted. Decisions were made, and then they were studied and experimented. Now, maybe this is old think, but I thought you tested and experimented and validated first before you made decisions. We haven't seen that. 
And I just want to end by what is Force Design 2030? The latest I've heard from the Commandant of the Marine Corps, he said it's not an end state. That's curious. It's not a structure. It's not a strategy. What is it? Well, he says it is a, a, a campaign of learning. Now, I am sure somebody's going to explain that to me. He also said it's a process. Well, I don't know how you have a process in a campaign without an end state or an objective, so I'm curious to learn what that is. So from a concerned grandfather, I think there's a lot to be discussed about Force Design 2030, what it really is and what it really means, and what risk it poses to our ability to meet the, the current requirements of our combatant commanders. I see a lot about strategy, about how Marine forces are going to be employed and exactly where they're going to be employed, particularly in the Indo-PACOM uh, theater. The last I heard, that was the job of the COCOM commander. I have never heard a service chief talk about where his forces would be employed and how they would be employed. In my time as a combatant commander, we would have a come to Jesus with the Secretary of Defense if we had a service chief whose job is to provide forces, not to tell a COCOM commander how and where they're to be employed. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. <clears throat> Zakai. Well, um, I'm the only non-retired Marine on this panel. <laughs> and I'm not going to claim superiority over General Zinni because I have 16 grandchildren. However, um, I've been working uh, on uh, analytical issues for the Marine Corps for about 40-odd years. Uh, I was involved in the debate about pre-stocking in Norway all those years ago in the 1970s. So I can just give you a perspective on how I see uh, what's going on here, and I've chatted with General Berger about this as well. It seems to me, and you've just heard two articulate uh, cases made, uh, both for and against. And I think there's merit in both sets of the arguments. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we're in a different century. We're in a different situation, world situation. And that's before Mr. Putin decided he wanted to get our attention. Uh, and so I don't think it's out of bounds for the Commandant of the Marine Corps to think about how does the Marine Corps function in this new environment where China is the long-term threat. Uh, at the same time, I think the, uh, and it's not just the retired generals, I agree with General Zinni that there are people further down the Marine Corps chain of command who also have serious concerns. Um, my biggest concern, quite frankly, is let's assume that this becomes the way you use your Marines. How do you support them? Where's the logistics here? And I can talk more about that uh, during the discussion. But it seems to me that that whole part of the discussion, of the concept, really needs to be fleshed out. And as a former comptroller, I can also tell you it needs to be funded. So there's an issue there that uh, I believe has yet to be fully resolved. On the other hand, uh, it is true, as General Zinni says, there's stuff that's left the Marine Corps and will not be coming back, howitzers for the Ukraine, for example. But there's a role for the Marine Corps in Northern Europe and not just in Norway. Should Finland and Sweden come into NATO, and I would argue even if for whatever reason one or more of the NATO nations blocks their coming in, and as you know it has to be unanimous, we've got 30 NATO nations now, so the odds that all 30 will come on board 
I wouldn't bet the family farm against it, but I wouldn't bet the family farm on it either. But let's say even if they don't, they are so closely entwined both with their NATO Nordic members and with us that one can, should seriously consider what is the role of the Marine Corps not only in the north, the far north, but in the Baltic, and I can expand on that as well. And then, as General Zinni said, uh, Iran isn't going away, and neither are most of our forces in the Middle East. The rhetoric is one thing, and the actual placement of forces is very different. So there's a role for the Marines there. How all that fits together, even if you assume that General Berger's concept will hold up, is an open question in my mind. So it seems to me that there's a lot more that needs to be discussed, debated, analyzed, wargamed, exercised, uh, that has yet to be done. And while I totally agree with uh, Secretary Bob Work that Jim Webb was completely out of line, uh, I can vouch for that because there's no way, even if he wasn't adding, asking for more money from the comptroller or Dave Norquist, the deputy secretary at the time, just moving monies around would have required the comptroller to sign what's called a program budget decision. And clearly it was signed, and therefore, and, and I can tell you as comptroller, you didn't sign those things if you knew the secretary or the deputy were unhappy with them. So the top echelon clearly supported what General Berger was doing. But they weren't going into the analysis. They weren't going into the details. They weren't asking the kinds of questions that I've just asked that General Zinni asked. And those questions must be answered. And why don't I stop there? Thank you very much. General Van Riper. We're using the uh, analogy of a grandparent. Let me uh, pick it up also. Uh, I'm undoubtedly the oldest grandparent here this afternoon at all, almost 84 years of age. It is not a custody fight for the grandchild. It's the, the life of the grandchild. <clears throat> what the leadership of the Marine Corps is doing is an existential threat to the Corps. I and those other retired generals who are concerned don't believe the Marine Corps will exist if 2030 is fully implemented. That's how serious we take it. So not a custody fight. We're talking about the life of the child. I have a number of concerns. Uh, let me talk first about risk. Even if you stipulated that everything that General uh, Berger wants to do is well and good and ought to be done, it not, ought not to be done in the manner in which he's doing it. That is divesting of capability before the replacements are aboard. Let's take the 72 M777 howitzers which he gave up and went to Poland or went to, to a Ukraine, the tanks probably went to Poland, um, those were given up before the missile batteries that are replace them are available. They, they will not become available until a, a minimum a year from now in 2030 before they're fully replaced. Why would you risk national security by giving up that sort of capability? I'm also concerned about process. As Zinni said, I was the commanding general of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command, where the combat development process originated and has been used for 30 years quite successfully. General Berger did not use that process. He brought a small group of 
retired colonels around him. They came up with the idea, and it was handed off to the rest of the Marine Corps as fiat. We are talking to active duty generals. We're talking to recently retired who told us they were never involved. The process was not used. Anyone who's done a study and have been or looked at any studies on innovation and change in organizations tell you that is a recipe for failure. If you do not involve the organization, almost the entire organization, in innovative ideas, it, it's not going to take. And we're, see, we're seeing that now. These sorts of ripples you're seeing are a result of, of failure to use that well-tested process. I'm concerned about Navy support. I have heard no Navy buy into this. Is the Navy going to be willing to support these isolated units? Are they going to be willing to risk their, their sailors, their equipment, to take out casualties, to bring in resupplies? Are they going to support Marines who try to do the same thing? Now, the question is, if it's been approved all the way up through, theoretically, the President and through to the Congress, it's easy to see why, because the tough questions have not been asked. You're talking about a commandant with about 40 years of experience. If you just take the retired four-star generals, that's 1,200 years of experience. Start looking at the three-stars and the two-stars. You're talking about 10,000 years of experience. I know of only two retired generals who believe this is a good idea. Why is it that one man has insight that all of this wealth of combat experience Look at our combat records here. Look at our units we've commanded. There's a lot of experience there that's been ignored. Let me give you one example. The idea of a stand-in force is to put units on small islands and they will be low observable, which means they'll have stealth capability. There is no item of equipment in the force that is being proposed that has any stealth capabilities. They will be seen, in the case that were most frequently used, the Chinese, they will be seen, they'll be targeted, and Marines will die because of this flawed concept. No, no stealth capability. Their vehicles, their radars, their uh, trucks. In the case of just the missile battery, 43 vehicles, not counting any of the uh, sensors, or the anti-air weapons that go in with it. It's also operationally flawed and strategically flawed, and I can get into that as we go along. So if the tough questions had been asked last week of the Commandant, um, the tough questions that were asked yesterday of the Army, for example, the same representative who gave softball questions to the Commandant, Representative Gallagher demanded of the Army yesterday, how are you going to go on to these islands? Who's going to give you permission? And there was no answer. There is no answer for the Marine Corps either. That's, that's why this thing has flown through. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, as moderator, let me ask a couple of questions. But I can say that if nothing else this afternoon, we have established the metaphor of the Marine Corps as a dysfunctional family. Uh, but let me ask a question, sort of the broader question. Is there a compromise or hedge position that meets Commandant Berger's desire for long-range precision strike in the Western Pacific, but also responds to concerns about combined arms and uh, 
global uh, employment that the, uh, many of the retired generals have brought up. So let me work uh, down our panelists here, starting with Secretary Work. Well, a lot to unpack here. Uh, first of all, the Commandant's primary vector for Force Design 2030 is we are moving into an era where almost all of the military competitors will have guided munitions, loitering munitions, the C4IS, you know, the, the battle networks to employ them. And he's saying, we're not ready for that future. And the primary guiding factor of FD2030 is what the Commandant refers to as distributed operations getting to the smallest units that have the most operational capability, disaggregating them, and operating that way. The Commandant is not trying to make stealthy units. He's trying to develop a force design that provides for some level of survivability in this incoming future. So that's the primary vector. Then, who's the primary threat? Or who is the pacing threat? He's saying, of course we're going to have to deal with the China. We've been told by our leaders we have to be prepared for that. So the third Marine Expeditionary Force, which is based in the Pacific, he has said we're going to reorganize them to have what he refers to as Marine Literal Regiments, which are these um, units that would be able to operate along the first island chain. The 1st Marine Expeditionary Force in California and the 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force in Camp Lejeune are going to remain the same expeditionary forces that they've always been. They won't have tanks, that is true. They will have fewer cannon batteries but more rocket batteries, multiple launch rocket systems. In my view, I'm a Marine artilleryman. The fires that are being developed for Force Design 2030 is far beyond the fire's capability of the current force we have now. If something happens in Europe, second MEF goes to Europe. If something happens in the Middle East, it's going to probably be IMEF out in California. They'll go. Marine Corps Reserve Forces will be able to add in. They're going to be an operational uh, reserve rather than a strategic reserve. They're going to fight the same fight. This Marine FD 2030 would be able to do a desert storm operation with four Marine Infantry Regiments and six cannon battalions. Um, so the idea that the Marines are not going to be employed anywhere else in the world is just not correct. The Commandant has already said, look, we're going to make one MLR, a Marine Literal Regiment, we're going to test it. So he converted the 3rd Marine Regiment on Hawaii into an MLR as the experimental unit. He's already asking the 3rd MEF commander, how should we do this? And the 3rd MEF commander has come back and said, hey, we're looking at this. Maybe instead of going three Marine Littoral Regiments, maybe we should go two Marine Littoral Regiments and keep one Infantry Regiment. To which the Commandant may say, let's do that if the experiments show that that is more effective. So the Marine Corps is going to still be the force in readiness. It's still going to be the uh, US 911 force. It's still going to be able to do all the combat tasks that the Marine Corps of today can do, and I would argue, do them better. So 
you know, there is no stepping back and making the Marine Corps just focused on China. China is the pacing threat. It's the stress test. If we can't win there, uh, we have a problem. Thank you. Uh, General Zinni? Well, you know, it's interesting to me to, to hear that we need to purpose design certain forces to meet specific missions. The hallmark of the Marine Corps has been that we have maintained balanced combined arms forces in what General Gray called three reservoirs of combat power, each of our Marine Expeditionary Forces. And these could task organize for a mission. So my question would be, and this is a question I believe the three MEF commander asked, why can't I just keep my infantry regiments, keep my organization, and I could task organize for a specific mission like this uh, little island strategy that's come up? which, by the way, I think, as General Van Riper pointed out, is highly questionable in terms of its survivability, its ability to get in place, and its ability, because of its immobility, not to be detected by Chinese forces spread through the Spratleys on other islands, and now have made a security pact uh, with the Solomon Islands, which I think is behind that island chain, in fact. So it's a strange mission. And why have we had to have the, the severe cuts in combat power without an analysis of what it means? When we question about the tanks, the answer we get is, oh, the Army will provide tanks if we need them. Well, one, I wish somebody would check with the United States Army, because what I hear is they have no intention of providing tanks to the Marine Corps. And by the way, if I'm a MEF commander and I have no experience with employing armor, or have nothing like it in my organization, and you give it to me, you think I'm going to effectively employ it? Now, we've been able to do that since Desert Storm was brought up, since it, we want to bring up history. It was a hell of a lot more combat power than existed there. We did get a brigade from the uh, Army, Armor Brigade, but we had tank battalions from two different MEFs also there which allowed the Marine Corps to understand how to employ it. I'm not saying the M1 tank is the answer, but what I'm saying is armor, modernization, improvement, if we need to, we're all for that. We come from a history of innovation. I did my doctoral thesis on military innovation, organizational innovation, and I studied corporate innovation, I studied military or, uh, innovation. 95% of innovations that fail are done the way that this commandant has approached this. And that is to have a small group that is outside the basic organization provide you with the ideas or thoughts and then direct decisions before you've tested and experimented, then backtrack and try to re-inspect and validate and, and experiment and test out the, the ideas and then make adjustments. That confuses the organization, which we've seen here. And I've commanded a Marine Expeditionary Force. I've also commanded uh, the Marine Combined Marine Expeditionary Force for Korea. We had five divisions underneath that MEF and two air wings because we looked at the threat and saw what we would face. And I would tell you, the combatant commander at that time said to me, can you handle this? A core level area, zone of action. Can you see everything in here? Can you strike everything? Can you maneuver throughout of it? Can you logistically support it? And most of all, can you command and control it? I take issue with the fact of thinking that 
currently the way the Force Design 2030 is headed, that that can be done in the long run. And by the way, the latest I heard is these other two MEFs are not organized that way. One MEF is supposedly the, quote, warfighting MEF, which to me is insulting to the other two MEFs. And then two MEF is supposed to come, become some sort of crisis response JTF MEF. First of all, I didn't know the Commandant had the authority to designate joint task forces. I guess as a COCOM commander, we've ceded that to a service chief. You know, and, and I'm not sure what that means. We had three balanced MEFs. You want to improve, you want the technology to improve it, you want the modernization to occur, you want adjustments in the structure. We've lived through that. The Commandant said that we have not had uh, a change, a significant change in our structure since the 1950s. That's an insult to the Commandants that went before him and all the change that we have seen in, in the time we've been in the Marine Corps, the years that General Van Riper mentioned. I want to make, give you a quote from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, at his testimony last month. He said, decision in war is ultimately achieved on land, and maintaining a capable land force in the United States Army and Marine Corps is key to our overall deterrence capability and our national security. I guess General Berger didn't get the memo, but that doesn't sound like to me we're all on the same sheet of music as to what the requirement is going to be for the Marine Corps always have been not only the nation's crisis response force, but the ability at a fight level to become a joint task force to handle operations at the lower spectrum and to meet the requirements of every combatant commander. We have seen the component, marine components being reduced in size and strength, even the, the seniority of the senior component commanders being reduced by this service chief in other co uh, combatant commands where he seems not to co-coms. All we hear is this island change strategy. Thank you. Thanks. Secretary Zaka. Well, I don't want to get caught up in an internal uh, marine-friendly discussion. Um, a couple of points as an outsider. First, Title 10 does say that it's the service chiefs who are in charge of organizing, training, and equipping. So if the Commandant wants to organize and change and train and equip differently, he's got every right to do so under Title 10. Title 10 does not give that responsibility to the combatant commanders. That's just a fact. The combatant commanders then say, I need X, Y, and Z, and the job of the service chiefs is to make that available to the extent they can and to the degree that the Office of the Secretary of Defense says they should. That's just the rules of the road, regardless of, of this debate. That's number one. Number two is, uh, as you heard from Secretary Work, the changes that are being made are specifically Pacific-focused. Uh, and it really is a challenging question. How do you deal with China? We're not going to invade the Chinese mainland. This is not going to be the Korean War. It's going to be very, very different. Different equipment, different enemy. Obviously, the geography is not exactly conducive to fighting that kind of war because, quite honestly, it's the same problem with Iran. Very big country. So the issue then becomes, how do you think about that? How do you organize for that? How do you train for that? Uh, and what 
General Berger, the commandant, has said is, I've got to do it differently. He's not the first that tried to do something differently, as radically different as that. General Shai Meyer tried to do that in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And basically, the way he looked at warfare was, we're going to fight the next wars in the Middle East. And he was right. And everybody thought he was wrong. But he was just 20 years ahead of his time. I don't know that the Chinese will give us 20 years. So it's, but nevertheless, you know, there is that 5% that General Zinni acknowledged. The question is, is this the 95% or is this the 5%? The other thing is, uh, and I mentioned this in my brief remarks earlier, there is a role for the classic Marine Corps approach to the way it's been fighting wars in the Baltic Sea. One possibility is for much more extensive training uh, in, in the Baltic, exercises, say, with the Swedes on Bornholm, exercises, say, with the Finns on the Åland Islands. Why? Because you've got that Russian enclave called Kaliningrad that threatens our Baltic allies. Now, 25 years ago, we didn't have those allies. Now, NATO is a, is a really, the Baltic Sea is a NATO lake, but you've got to protect it. You've got to ensure that it remains a NATO lake. You've got to have a threat against Russia that just wasn't necessary or really wasn't possible when it was all part of the Soviet Union. Who's going who's to materialize that threat? What other allied nation has a Marine Corps like ours? The answer is self-evident. None. So the Marine Corps has a role there in addition to what General Berg is trying to do in the Pacific. And as I said, there are some very, very important questions that have to be addressed. How do you supply these guys in the, on these islands? How do they move around? You know, there's an article in the proceedings, uh, Naval Institute proceedings the other month, where somebody suggested moving around on mules. Um, I don't know. I'm not a muleteer. Uh, but clearly there are issues about tactical mobility and supply. Maybe you want to use submarines. I don't know. But that has to be worked out. Nevertheless, there is a role in Europe and there will be a continual role in the Middle East because Iran's not going away. And as Secretary Work said, as Bob said, he, the Commandant's not changing those two MEFs. Now one could get into a debate as you just heard, as to what's happening with one of those MEFs. But that's a debate. It's clear that he's not doing with those two MEFs what he wants to do with the one in the Pacific. And the one in the Pacific clearly has a very, very different challenge from what it had 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 40 years ago. It's just different. And what he's trying to do is get his arms around how do you deal with that different sort of challenge? It's not simple, it's not easy, but it's going to require breaking glass. Thank you. General Van Riper. Really, uh, two issues on the table now. It's the actual changes being made and how those changes uh, are being directed to be made. Let me take the actual changes, and this gets into the question of why haven't, uh, has there been more pushback? You've got to go a little bit into the, the nomenclature to understand what's happening underneath. We're talking about the Pacific. We're talking about the third Marine Expeditionary Force, 
which has an air wing, a logistics element, and a marine division. A marine division normally has nine battalions, nine infantry battalions plus artillery battalions in support of it. Those nine battalions fall under three regiments. Those regimental headquarters fight those battalions. They move them, they bring in the fires, maneuver and fires. In, in the Commandant's plan, those three maneuver uh, regiments go away. They're gone. Only three of those infantry battalions stay as infantry battalions. And there's no headquarters for them. And it means the division will have to fight them. The remainder of the forces go into these littoral regiments, and they are incapable of fire and maneuvering. They're divided across these many islands with missiles. They don't have the weapons, the equipment, to do what infantry units normally do. These are the type units that would be needed in a situation in Korea if you wanted to reinforce Japan if there was a threat and a number of other places in the Pacific, not just the, the, the island chain. So it sounds good to say we've got a MEF, but there, we've got a division. It's what's underneath that's not there. What also happens is to pay for that, you've got to come clear back to the East Coast and the second Marine Expeditionary Force and the second division, which should have three regiments with nine battalions. One of those regiments and its battalions are gone to pay for what's happening out in the Pacific. So if you think about going to Europe with a Marine division, it's not there. 25% of United States ground forces are provided by Marines. There are only 10 Army divisions or three Marine divisions. There won't be three Marine divisions. There'll be one, one full divisions, one completely gone, and the other two-thirds strength. That's what's happening underneath that the questions aren't being asked. Let's talk about how you go about thinking about this. General Zinni, I come from an era when more changes were made than perhaps are being made now. It was under a commandant by the name of General Al Gray, followed by General Mundy, followed by General Krulak. During that period, there were open discussions. There were articles in magazines. We would meet at night and argue, and I would walk into a room. There would be a general there. There'd be a Marine captain. There'd be majors, lieutenant colonels. It was never the rank. It was never the billet that that person held. It was the merit of the ideas. And if the idea didn't stand up and the general presented it, it went away. If the captain's idea had merit, it stuck. It was an intellectual exercise. It wasn't by fiat. And out of that came probably the most powerful ideas that the Marine Corps has ever had called maneuver warfare. <clears throat> Published in a book called Warfighting, it's been transferred into 13 different languages and guides, it's supposed to guide the Marine Corps today. And even though the Commandant claims it does, it does not. General Gray, General Krulak, and the author of that manual have all said it does not. He is not following the doctrine he claims he's following. Well, thank you very much. Let me turn to some of the questions that are coming in uh, from the audience. And uh, if I could ask uh, the panelists to try to keep their answers short so we can get through as many as we uh, can. Uh, but the first question, actually, I think is for the generals. And the question is, does the recently released annual update on Force Design 2030, and I actually happen to have a copy of it right here, just came out, I think, last week. 
Does it answer any of the concerns that you have uh, about the general direction of the Marine Corps? And let me start with General Zinni, and then we'll go to General Van Riper. Well, what I've found is uh, it, it's sort of backtracking. It's suddenly now found experimentation and, and, and maybe realistic wargaming. We have heard that the war games done before to, quote, validate these things. By the way, war games do not validate anything. It's just a way to propose an idea. Validation is done through experimentation. It's done through testing. It's done through exercises. And then once implementation occurs, it is done through feedback and, and modification. Uh, it, it's sort of a recognition that, that, that this wasn't done. We're now back re, revisiting decisions that were made, putting back some structure that was out. I take issue with the fact that you're, you're saying that the, two, the other two mess are exactly the way they were. Well, if I was a MEF commander, I'd go looking for those tanks that were exactly here. Uh, I'd go looking for those heavy engineers and that bridging equipment that was supposed to be here. I'd be looking for all those helicopter squadrons that were supposed to be here. And by the way, if I started counting the PAA, the number of helicopters and, or, or fixed-wing aircraft in a squadron, I might find that there's some missing. So I take issue with it. It's the same. Now, we are going to find technology that's going to replace that? Hey, I'm all for it. Prove it to me. But before you step off that damn lily pad, make sure you got one to step onto. You know, we have experienced the siren song of technology replacing capabilities. We saw it with the McNamara line in Vietnam. General Van Riper and I both have had two tours in Vietnam. I still have one round in me from Vietnam. We've both been wounded uh, seriously there. The McNamara line was going to do away with the need to patrol the DMZ with ground forces. Well, first of all, you shouldn't trust the guy that gave us the Edsel. And then I would take you to desert, to the uh, uh, recent attacks in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we decided, or the Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld, decided we had too many ground forces. That was obsolete. That was old. You know, General Milley's testimony be damned. Shock and awe was going to resolve it. He cut the ground forces by two-thirds that was in the CENTCOM plan for Iraq. And what did we have to do? Well, the troops called shock and awe all shucks, because then there had to be a surge that put more ground forces back in to try to recover the momentum we lost, and it never worked. Be careful of that siren song of technology. Admiral Stravitas has just written an article about technology. We love technology. We should embrace it. We should understand how it fits, how it integrates. We should be careful about assuming it does away with other capabilities rather than complement it. And that's been our point throughout this. Let's go back to the annual update. Uh, I'll only take one point in the annual update. That's task number 20. That is to do a study of fires, a meth, of meth fires. Fires means artillery, rockets, missiles, and in some cases, aircraft. Why are you doing the study now after you've already gotten rid of so much of your artillery. That's a little late. Talk about the putting the cart before the horse. Now, I want to dwell on this for a minute, because we're going to go from 21 cannon artillery, what you, under, you normally understand of artillery, to five batteries, maybe seven. We're going from 21 to five or seven. We're replacing them with missile batteries. Does the Marine Corps need missiles? Absolutely. Does it need 14? Absolutely not. You know why it doesn't need 14? 
because when you fire an artillery round, you're a couple hundred dollars. When you fire a rocket round, you're somewhere between $10,000 and $100,000. When you fire the Naval Strike Missile, the one that's going there, $1.7 million. That's what you're firing. Now, I can tell you from as a ground officer, I want a lot of fires. I, I want supp suppression fires. I don't want one round with a 200-pound warhead. I want 100, 200, 300 artillery rounds coming in. And, and you're never going to do that at $1.7 million, and they don't exist. So that, that's the problem. Now, those missiles don't have the same type of warheads that artillery does. I asked the questions of some of these bright folks around our commandant. I said, where in the future are Marines going to get illumination rounds? Because rockets and missiles don't have them. Where are they going to get smoke if they want to obscure their movement? Where are they, where are they going to get white phosphorus if, phosphorus if they want to mark a target? You know what I was told? Wars in the future won't require that. I guess the Russians and the Ukrainians didn't, didn't get the message. Or if they do, Marines won't fight in them. I don't even know how to talk to folks like that. So why do I get mad? That, that's what's going on to our Marine Corps, and nobody except the, the, the retired officers, some of whom just recently retired, seem concerned about it. Well, thank you. Uh, the next question. Could I say oh, certainly. We are still going to have cannons. The cannons will still shoot smoke. They'll stu still shoot a loom. They'll still shoot white phosphorus. But what we will have is more rocket artillery. And that gives us much more range, much more precision, and much more lethality. The MLRS missile can be tuned to either fire a ballistic trajectory or a vertical fall of shot. The MLRS is the only indirect fire weapon that was used to support troops in combat in urban canyons because the missile is so, I mean, the rocket is so accurate and it comes from a vertical fall of shot that you can operate those within 200 meters of troops in contact in an urban environment. We're still going to have all the cannon artillery that we've had in the past in the same rounds. But essentially what you have to think of an MLRS as a small diameter bomb, same warhead weight, 200 pounds, extraordinarily accurate, and the Marines will be able to drop these types of unitary charges everywhere. Charge of suppression, they have an alternative warhead which has 160,000 tungsten pellets. This is a giant shotgun and it will do suppression, believe me. So it's not. Then on the infantry side, Secretary Mattis created a close combat lethality task force. His basic assumption was we never do the things we need to do to make the infantry more lethal in close combat. And they made all sorts of different recommendations. The Marine Corps redesigned infantry battalion is going to get the vast majority of those. It will be a more lethal infantry battalion than we have today, without question. The Marines are still going to be able to close with and kill the enemy through fire and maneuver. They're still going to be able to do that. There's two MEFs, a reservoir of capability, the Commandant says, that's going to allow us to take care of all of these other things. But as Dove said, in the Pacific, I need to fine-tune the MEF organization 
so they can handle the pacing threat. That does not seem to be something that is off base. So there's a lot of assertions that the new design will be less lethal, but there's no analysis to suggest that. None. There's more analysis to suggest that the changes that the Commandant are making uh, are going to result in a very, 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 well, a continuing lethal Marine Corps. Mr. Secretary, could, could we see that analysis? Because we've asked to see the analysis and never have. Moreover, <clears throat> the retired community has offered to play the opposition force against Force 2030 and has been refused. <clears throat> the leadership of the Marine Corps will not allow the retired community to play against it. You might ask the question, if the Marine Corps is so sure of itself, why are there no active duty Marine Corps generals up here today? But also, the, Mr. Secretary, you changed, the, you changed the subject. I was talking about artillery and artillery batteries. 21, an artillery battery associate cannon associated with every infantry battalion. There's going to be 20, there are going to be 21 infantry battalions and five artillery cannon. How do you do that? Yeah, you can put the missile batteries with them, but you're putting, you're putting them with the 1.7 million. They're not going to be able to do the suppression fires, fire the smoke, et cetera. Change the subject of the infantry and, and Secretary Mattis's lethality. I was a member of that group. I know what that was all about. I'm not talking about, I, I applaud what General Berger's doing for increasing lethality of the infantry. It has nothing to do with my, my concern about the artillery. And I'm really surprised because the Secretary was an artillery officer. Again, you task organized for the fight. So if you, as everyone has said, so if a meth needs to go into a fight that requires more cannon artillery, then you task organize that way. Why don't That's we task it. organize for the, these, M these MLRs? Well, the MLRs are an experimental design unit to but what's so what needs to be done? You know, look at the components that they need. Obviously, there's some technology. There, you know, but the, the, even the three MEF commanders were saying, "Let me task organize for the mission." So we make an argument for traditional approaches on one side, then we make an argument against it on another side. You know, one of the things we're trying to do is sort this out. Every time we see another update to this thing, we're back into the experimental phase, the testing phase. And uh, it, I mean, it, to me, it seems uh, that we ought to wait to make decisions. And this was our point until after you've done the analysis and the testing and also bring in all your people and your leadership because guess what? They've got to live with it and fight it. That's what the point we tried to make. Well, let uh, me jump in here for a second. I mean, I can't talk about the tactics on the ground with retired Marines who are far more experienced in that regard. But I can talk a little bit about how analysis works, because I've been doing that for decades. You come up with a, a hypothesis and an idea, and that's when you test it, and that's when you analyze it. You don't analyze first and then come up with the idea. That's not, you just don't test the things. The idea that. is different than a decision. Well, but look, the, the commandant has basically said, I am open to revision. That's what this latest document was, and that's the proper way to do it. If you're trying to revolutionize something, then you throw out the, this concept. You say, this is what I want to do, and yeah, I'm open to refinement. That's when the analysis comes in, 
And you're right, you do need to have not just war games and analysis, you do need to have exercises, but those are the things that help you modify, fine tune, and adjust. And quite frankly, I can understand, with all due respect to you, General Van Riper, why the Commandant doesn't want the retired Marine community to be the red team on this. Because quite frankly, you already know what answer you want to have. That's not what he needs. Who well, we said that? I mean, that's an assumption. First of all, he brought in retired officers uh, and actually took their advice rather than consult his own active duty general officer. Well, and you just proved my point. He, well, you know, he doesn't want to have people who already are fixed and locked in, but he's certainly why, willing why to listen to everybody. Why are we fixed and locked in? We are definitely not locked in. The Marine Corps needs to change. The Marine Corps needs new technology. It will be different than the Corps we served in. We're not looking longing for some long old days. What we're saying is come up with an operational concept, do the analysis, do, the, do that before you make changes. Those 400 tanks aren't coming back to the Marine Corps. Those 72 artillery pieces aren't coming back. Those aircraft we've given up aren't coming back. Why would you? And when you cut structure, you cut talent. <clears throat> The, the NCOs, the officers, the mechanics, the technicians for all these units are gone. They either left the Marine Corps, retired, went off to do something, or went into the Army. You can't bring, you can't snap your fingers and bring them back overnight. That takes years to develop. That's what I say. That's what we're killing the kid. That's why we're in court, not, not for custody. We're trying to save the kid's life. The, the CDNI process at Quantico says two to seven years to process these. You can have all the ideas in the world. As a matter of fact, we would encourage them. We, we would insist on them. They're introduced in games. Games do not validate anything. It's the introduction of an idea. That idea, when it's introduced, the game's purpose is to look at the uh, advantages and disadvantages, the questions, the hard questions, and then they go into experimentation. They go into study. They go into live exercise. When they go into implementation, there's a feedback loop on them. We, General Van Riper commanded the organization and the process did it. I was a deputy in it. We know how to do analysis. We were under General Gray and under General Krulak and everybody else looking for ideas. But an idea is not a decision. It comes at the end of a process, not at the beginning, and then you test it. Well, all I would say is, let, let me I don't let me disagree with anything you said except, you. and this is clear to me, that when you have the higher-ups, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, buying into it, they're operating, I think, from a somewhat different premise, which is they know the Marines are giving up tanks. They know the Marines are giving up aircraft. They certainly are not unaware of the issues you, you two gentlemen just raised. So the question is, why are they doing it? They're not stupid. I think the answer tends to be they're looking at it in the context of a joint force. And why and did those secretaries give us the McNamara line in shock and awe? Well, let me tell you something. We're not talking about McNamara. Last time I, I knew Jim Mattis, he was a retired Marine. With he a pretty does good not agree with this, what's going on. But he hasn't spoken out. And you out. can talk to him. I won't speak for Jim him. Jim hasn't spoken out. Maybe somebody else has. Maybe you give him a call. I, I have one last question here. We're slightly over time, but the elephant in the room is tanks, as we've noted. And I wanted to talk a little about that before uh, we closed, because it gets a lot of attention. Now, the Marine Corps has made three arguments for getting rid of tanks. Uh, one is that they don't see tanks as useful in the kinds of 
conflicts they foresee that they will participate in. The second is that the Army will provide tanks in the unlikely, in their view, uh, situation where they do need tanks. And the third is that tanks are obsolete, that there are many effective anti-tank weapons on the battlefield uh, and that the, the day of the tank has passed. So if I could ask each one of the panelists to give me two sentences in response to that, um, we can close out. Secretary Work. Um, the Commandant has said the tanks are not worth the opportunity cost. They're extraordinarily heavy. They're extremely maintenance intensive. They are giant gas suckers. Uh, and they're not useful in a campaign uh, against China. We're not going to be fighting tank battles against China. Then in the other fights, he's saying that technology is making tanks more vulnerable on the battlefield. And therefore, we have to make adjustments for that. And he has done that uh, by pursuing organic precision fires, long-range precision fires, down to the squad level, uh, where you know a $10,000 anti-tank round will take out an $8 million uh, Abrams tank. And the Commandant has said tanks are not obsolete, just for the future that we see, we don't need them. Okay, General Zinni. I'll give you two sentences. Why hasn't the Army come to the same conclusion, and why is President Zelensky asking for tanks? Okay, thank you. Secretary Zakheim. I would argue they're not obsolete, but you have to look at the context. In the context of the Army, you need them. In the context of the Marine Corps, in certain circumstances, you may not. And what General Berger has concluded is, in East Asia, they don't make sense. I would argue, personally, that they do make sense in Europe, but that's why the Army has a lot of tanks. And Korea? And Korea, but remember... That's, East, that's in Asia, that's but, the last time I checked. But the last time I also checked, the Korean, the Iraq military conventional was pretty damn strong, which it wasn't in 1950. General Riper. What they forget is any time you have a weapon, you're going to have an anti to that weapon, anti-air, anti-armor, whatever it is. goes back to the, a rock and, and a shield. What was happening to the Marine Corps tanks, a system was putting on called Trophy, which would protect them against anti-tank weapons. The Israelis, who have it's a, that's their system, they have a 95% success rate in combat of, of stopping missiles. So this idea that the tank is obsolete misses what, what's going on, and the, the very tanks that we gave up were having those systems installed on them, and there are more advanced programs that will provide that kind of protection. I asked a member, a senior member of the intelligence community uh, what nation in, or what military in the world was giving up tanks. Just do an informal survey. I don't want you to get in classified and, and come back and tell me. He said, Liechtenstein. No other military in the world except the United States Marine Corps has decided to give up tanks. Well, thank you very much. We've come to the end of our time. I'd like to thank our panelists for joining us, and I ask uh, people to um, thank our panelists for taking the time from their schedules to have this uh, very lively conversation. Thank you very much. On Monday, I had the pleasure of watching uh, an event that uh, our next guest, Mark Kansian, who's a friend of the show, I would call him. He's uh, been coming on All Marine Radio since uh, it began in about 2016. Uh, retired colonel, 
United States Marine Corps, and um, Mark uh, moderated the forum entitled On the Future of the Marine Corps, colon, Assessing Force Design 2030. Um, and in that panel were uh, four distinguished gentlemen, uh, Robert Work, uh, former Deputy Secretary of Defense, and um, former Colonel, United States Marine Corps, um, Dub Zakim, former Undersecretary of Defense. He's a money guy, uh, controller type. Uh, General Zinni and Lieutenant General Van Riper. So pretty robust people. And uh, so, first of all, Mark, uh, thank you for doing this, and welcome back to All Marine Radio. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Um, let me ask you a couple of general uh, knowledge questions, and then we'll talk about what went on on Monday. Um, first of all, uh, I'd be curious about your thoughts about Russia v. Ukraine. Um, um, you you work with a lot of smart people, and here's some very interesting discussions. But um, I think if so, if somebody would have told you six months ago that hey, Russia will invade Ukraine. The West will rise to the occasion. NATO will become something it's never been. The Baltic will become a NATO possession. Um, I think we all would have looked at him and said, right, okay. Um, so give me some thoughts. Um, give me some thoughts, your perspective on what we're watching now. And, uh, and, and I started saying this last week. I'm not sure what's in the classified assessment of what's going on over there. But whatever it is, it has people that have heretofore never thumbed their nose at Russia or Vladimir Putin openly now sending arms. And you have Finland and Sweden saying, we will join NATO and we want to join now. Um, so uh, in the midst of all that, um, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, of course, in regard to the war. And as you say, you know, the war itself was just so unexpected. Most people, and I think myself included, you know, just did not expect one country to invade another here in the early 21st century. Um, it seemed so, you know, 18th century. Um, and I think that was one of the great surprises that, you know, real politique, you know, that uh, is still alive and these dangers are very real no matter how much maybe we wish they were in the past and we need to maintain a robust uh, defense effort uh, uh, to guard against them. A couple of other interesting things. I mean, when you go back to the beginning of the war, we can talk about some individual issues there. Um, one thing is that the intel community did very well, and that was important because they had done so badly in the run-up to the war in Iraq, and hadn't really covered themselves in glory in Afghanistan, um, but they were spot on with Russia. I mean, they saw early on the Russian uh, troop concentrations uh, divined, figured out what the Russian intentions were, that the war was coming, uh, and the president, to his credit, you know, got um, into the public forums and repeatedly said what was going to happen and what did happen. So the intelligence community, I think, is now in a much better shape, uh, you know, in terms of public regard. Um, on the question of NATO expansion, again, that's, 
you know, a huge surprise. Of course, Finland and Sweden have been very closely associated with NATO. Uh, Sweden is you know, as close to NATO as you could be without actually being a member. And Finland is becoming clo- has been becoming closer uh, over the last number of years. Uh, you know, Sweden has you know, a liaison cell at NATO headquarters, even, even now. Uh, but both of the publics were uh, wary about uh, an alliance. And although NATO um, support had been, you know, polling strongly, you know, maybe in the 30%-ish range, but it was not a majority. Neither uh, none of the, the major parties had committed to it. And of course, now that's all uh, changed. Uh, I will say on that one, I was a bit forward-leaning. Uh, Last summer, I published a report on what it would take to defend new members of potential new members of NATO, uh, one of two of which were uh, Sweden and Finland. I got a lot of pushback from some of the Europeanists who were saying that nobody is talking about bringing Sweden and Finland into NATO. Uh, you're just going to get people upset. Drop those chapters out of the report. I, I left them in and people can uh, see the report on online. I also had a section on what it would take to defend Ukraine against the Russian invasion. Of course, the answer was a lot. Uh, and as a result of that, and the work I do here at CSIS, where I write a lot about military forces and operations, I've been getting lots of calls from uh, journalists since the beginning of war. It's become literally a, a part-time job. Uh, in terms of you know where the war is now and some interesting things, uh, one interesting thing is how the Russian uh, war aims have contracted. Uh, we're not on our what I would argue is their third set of war aims. The initial war aims, of course, were to take over all of Ukraine, replace the government with some sort of puppet regime. Uh, that collapsed, of course, early on. Uh, then they started this offensive in the east. Looked like they were trying to pinch off the uh, uh, Russian forces, uh, rather the Ukrainian forces in the Donbass, coming wanted to come down from a town called Izium, get behind the um, Ukrainians and move up from Mariupol. Uh, neither of those uh, worked. Now, uh, uh, and if that had worked, you know, they might have been able to take over a big chunk of the um, eastern part of Ukraine. Now, now the best they can hope for and what they're talking about is nibbling off a bit more of the east and the Donbass, and even that's not going all that well. Uh, so the Russians have had to narrow their um, uh, their war aims. Uh, so, so right now it's really just, they're just fighting for a couple of villages in the East and, you know, not doing all that well at it. So let me stop there. And I mean, I can, I can keep going because I've <laughs> talked to journalists about this steadily for right. almost three months, but I'll give you a chance to weigh in. Well, let me, I'll ask you another question for you as somebody who watches, what has been the biggest surprise throughout all of this? Um, my, I, I think my biggest surprise after the war itself uh, has been how poorly the Russians have done. And I expected them to be much more skilled than they have turned out to be. I, I, I think I am in good company there. Uh, and yeah, I are literally every expert to include General Milley um, and other ones, you know, and Jack Keane, who you, you know, yep. who's uh, on TV said, you know, in the initial days when 
The Ukrainians were holding their own. He said, yes, but this will run out and the Russians will have their way. So um, I would tell you, you're in very good company that that in spite of the, I think, um, and, and help me, help me kind of parse the pie a little bit. Our assessment of the Russian military was not very good. Our ability to do electronic warfare, collect, and however we did that to make sure the world knew of his intentions was was is been very good. And the fact that the the lights never went out relative to the internet uh, over Ukraine is another very interesting story that someday might get told. I think that would be very interesting. And all the cy- things that have gone on in cyber war, I think, would be another interesting story. But you are in good company. Will you parse those two things? How? Yep. Uh, this Russian conscript force, uh, essentially, to call it a hollow force would probably be an insult to every hollow force out there, honestly. Um, well, yes, it's good to be in such distinguished company <laughs> when you're wrong. Uh, uh, to defend my being wrong, uh, if you look at the Russian military, they invaded the country of Georgia in 2008. They won, but they won ugly. A lot of fratricide, a lot of uh, confused operations. The whole thing took much longer than it should have against a third-rate power. So they went through a a large set of reforms. After that war, they eliminated unnecessary headquarters. They slimmed down the officer corps. They increased uh, training substantially. They added equipment, increased the defense budget. And then in 2014, they take over Ukraine, and that op operation was done very effectively, uh, almost bloodlessly. Uh, and, you know, the Russians were quite proud of it. And, you know, frankly, they should have been. I mean, taking over the Ukraine was not the right thing to do. But, you know, from a military point of view, uh, you know, it was very well done. And then later they intervene in Syria and their operations are brutal, but they seem to be quite effective. They're mostly with air power and special forces. But my belief, uh, and that I think of just about everyone else, was that their forces had changed. That they, this is not the, you know, uh, unskilled Russian mass army that you know, had been true through so much of their history. But this was a skilled force that looked a lot more like us. Uh, I think that was something they encouraged. But you know, you look at the pictures of their forces in Syria, for example. I mean, they, they looked a lot like us, frankly. Um, right. And then they did so badly. Uh, uh, you know, they they did not use combined arms effectively. Uh, their communications is you know in the open, and they're having lots of vulnerabilities there. Of course, morale has been very uh, uh, spotty. And the only thing I can think of, I mean, a couple of things, but one of them is that what we were seeing in 2014 and then in Syria were essentially either special forces or specially trained forces. You know, it's like judging the state of the Marine Corps by how well trained the deployed MU is. Uh, y- yes, the deployed MU is very well trained because it's it's up to strength. It's got all of its equipment. It's been trained for six months. And, of course, it's at a very high state. That doesn't mean that everybody back at Camp Lejeune at Camp Pendleton is up at the same uh, high level, although in the Marine Corps, I believe they are at a pretty uh, high uh, level. Mark, of course they are. We know that. That's right. They're at a pretty high level, <laughs> how, but they aren't how, at the high level. How, le- d- how dare you? <laughs> uh, but they aren't at the high level of the deployed units. Uh, and and every time we fight a war, we find that out. You know, right. that, you know the, the last couple of units going out the door are you know basically a shambles. Uh, so uh, 
so I think that was one one reason that is that we were not seeing what the rank and file looked like. We were seeing seeing what specially uh, the trained units were in uh, special forces. The other thing is, um, and this is a point that Michael Kaufman, who's over at CNA, makes: the Russian military was really designed as a mobilization military, particularly Russian army, and that is, um, it's about. Uh, one third, 40% conscripts, uh, which I should say is another uh, reform that they had made up to 2008. About two thirds, a little less than two thirds of the first are what they call contract and we would call volunteers. So, you know, you can train them a lot more and they have all the attributes and you know, strengths of a volunteer force, including cost, which was a problem for Russians. Um, but they built, you know, these brigades that were not fully manned in peacetime. The idea was that they would call up a lot of reservists and fill out the ranks. Uh, in peacetime, if they had to deploy a unit, they would send out these battalion tactical groups and basically they'd take the, the regiment, pull out all of the deployable troops, mostly the uh, volunteers, and create you know, a battalion tactical group out of a broader uh, brigade and send them to fight the war. Uh, now, that seemed plausible. Uh, I think what's happened is, uh, first, they had more conscripts than they probably uh, expected. And of course, the conscripts, there are, and there are legal restrictions on the use of conscripts in uh, Russia. But it also seems that they took all of their vehicles, which is not surprising. But what it meant is that they didn't have enough infantry, that you have this military with, with all kinds of armored vehicles and just not enough dismounted infantry to protect the vehicles and to, you know, you know, take, um, um, you know, um, you know, conduct uh, operations uh, in the field, which is sort of an, an irony, not sort of, it is an irony when you think about it, that the Russians, you know, traditionally have been known as a military that was infantry heavy and light on um, capital uh, assets, you know, weaponry. And now they have shown to be exactly the opposite. And I think that's why you're seeing all these problems holding ground and all these uh, shot up tanks. So they just really have too many of them. Um, uh, so I, I think you're seeing both of those dynamics. There are probably other dynamics. I mean, people point to, you still have a lot of conscripts. You still have these problems with sort of corruption and the maltreatment of, of conscripts and, you know, this tradition of not you know, not honest reporting. I mean, there, there are a lot of pathologies that have been in the Russian military, you know, since, you know, you know, Peter the Great, probably. Uh, right. uh, uh, but I would make one more point about the Russian military, uh, which is something that I think many people have seen from the beginning, and I have argued from the beginning. It's not a big military. It's a small military. The whole Russian armed forces are 900,000. Remember, the U.S. is 1.3 million and then we have 800,000 pretty well-trained reservists. Russians don't have a very good reserve system. So it's a much smaller force. The army is about 280,000. Know, this is not the Red Army of World War II that marched to victory over the bodies of its dead. This is a small military, very sensitive to casualties, uh, and uh, does not have you know, uh, the, the mass to overwhelm uh, an adversary. Where last question about this, and then we'll switch gears. Where is the Russian Air Force? Good question. <laughs> a lot of people. And if I were a Russian grunt, I would be super pissed. Uh, 
And, you know, I'd probably punch out the next Air Force officer I saw in a bar. You know, where were you? Because uh, the Russian Air Force does not seem to be very much in evidence. And among the think tank community, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, why the Russians are not flying more. I mean, first of all, at the beginning of the war, everyone, again, myself included, expected the Russians to do to the Ukrainians what we had done to the Iraqis. That is, within 48 hours, hammer their air force, hammer their air bases, gain air superiority. That didn't happen. It still hasn't happened. Uh, they, uh, the Russians are not flying a lot over Ukraine. Um, the last figures I saw that they were flying about 200 sorties a day. Maybe it's up to 300. But a lot of their um, sorties were within Russian airspace, and they would fire their long-range precision missiles, m- missiles from Russian airspace. And they haven't lost that many aircraft. The last count was about 35 jet aircraft. Uh, you know, and that's just not, it'd be one thing if they had lost 200 aircraft and they had just said, you know, we just can't keep this up. They haven't lost a lot uh, compared to like the Israelis. The Israelis lost, I'm going to say over a hundred in the first like two weeks of the uh, 1973 war. I mean, they kept on hammering the uh uh, Egyptians and the Syrians, despite the casualties, to you know to support their infantry uh, and their ground forces. The Russians have not done that. Uh, th- there are a bunch of theories out there, you know, that the Russian pilots are not well trained enough to conduct these kind of operations. That the aircraft are not well maintained enough to maintain a high sortie level. Uh, I think after the war we'll get some sense about why, but uh, the Russians still have not re- really. Uh, taking advantage of uh, their uh, that, having the upper hand in the air, which they still do, uh, and and now of course they're running out of precision munitions. Estimates are that they fired some seventy percent, uh, so you're seeing them actually dropping dumb bombs in places like Mariupol, where the air defenses are much lighter. Uh, so I don't think you're going to see at some point some reversal of this phenomenon in the Russian. Air Force all of a sudden, you know, taking to the skies. I think what you're, what you see is uh, what you're going to get. And, and the Russians have instead been using their long-range missiles uh, for their uh, strike rather than aircraft uh, or missiles launched from aircraft from long distances. And you, I mean, I understand why they're doing that, but I think we've seen that. I mean, yes, you can do some damage. Yes, you can kill a bunch of civilians, but you know, there just isn't enough to affect the strategic course of the war they don't they they can't cut the supply lines for example from nato it would take a lot more so so it's a, it's a great mystery and this is one of those things that i think uh, many observers are would like to find out more about when the war war is over um if you looked into your crystal ball how does it end and does vladimir putin survive um you know, great question. Uh, I, I think we're starting to see how it might end, and that is it might freeze about where the front lines are now. The Russians are sort of nibbling ahead village by village in the east, yeah, making a little progress, not a whole lot. You know, I keep wondering how long the Russian military will keep this up. I was thinking they'd be spent by April, and I was wrong on that. But they clearly have they've lost a lot of people, the, the uh, Brits have estimated they lost, they've lost about a third of their original invading force. Now they've re- 
had replacements and new units, but they aren't as skilled. Right. Uh, they, they've lost a bunch of equipment, of course, and morale you know, seems to be low. You know, there are just too many reports about low morale to dismiss as you know, uh, anecdotes and uh, you know, sort of wishful thinking by Ukrainians. I mean, the, 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 uh, the problems seem to be real. So at some point, I think they're just going to culminate. I keep thinking it's going to happen, you know, any week now. And of course, the Russians just keep moving ahead. But uh, what you, when, when they culminate, you know, they will dig in. And you are seeing some of that, I think, in the south around Kherson, uh, you know, the Russians digging in and the Ukrainians will try to lever them out. Will be, you know, they'll have, uh, uh, you know, uh, equipment that we've been sending them and then the West has been sending them uh, major end times. We can talk about that, too. Uh, that might help help them lever the Russians out, but that of course will be a, that'll be a tough fight because the Russians will be on the defense. Um, so you might you know you might stalemate just about where they are. You know, is there going to be will there be some sort of ceasefire, or you know will the war just sort of sputter along? Will there be a pause? Will both sides regroup and rearm, and then go at it again? We saw that in Chechnya. Russians took a couple of years off and then went back at the Chechnyans and and, and won the second time, uh, having reformed the military, realized that they had some serious problems. Uh, interestingly, you saw that uh, with um, the Israelis in 1948. You know, there were several phases in the war where there was a ceasefire. Both sides, you know, stepped back, built their forces, went at it again. The Israelis turned out to be much better at that than the Arab armies. Uh, so, so there are a couple possibilities there now. I think as long as the Russian forces are inside Ukraine, Putin can claim a victory. Uh, and you know, to be fair, you know, I mean, he he's gained territory. He owns whatever, I don't know, 10, 15 percent of uh, Ukraine, and you know, that's not, you know, that, that that's maybe enough for him to claim, you know, that the war was worth it. Uh, uh, I, I, I believe I believe that's called a what a pyrrhic victory. Uh, I mean, it could be. I mean, a lot depends on what happens on the other side. And the reason I the reason I yeah, if, I would have if, if you I, rack and stack that up, and then you say yeah, this is a win for us, people would look at you and say what what would you just say? Uh, well, I think people with the knowledge about the war that we have would say that it's not uh, clear that the Russian people have that information. And my understanding is that. Because Putin controls the media and information flow, that the war is quite popular in Russia. So, uh, so that's why I say you know it it may not be a pure victory from the point of view of your average uh, Russian. Uh, now, if if the if the just one last thought, you know, if the Russian forces do collapse, and of course historically that's happened, um, you know, if they just get so exhausted that they can't. They not only culminate, but they and the Russian and the Ukrainians push them out of Ukraine, maybe even push into uh, Russia. In that circumstance, I can see Putin's grip on power uh, fading. All right, let's we'll change gears. First of all, thank you for doing that. I uh, I didn't uh, I didn't warn you about that, but uh, I had a feeling that you would be uh, up to snuff on that. Um, I've, I've done a lot of engagement with <laughs> journalists since the war began, as I mentioned, you know, because of the work I had done. So I've probably done 
I'm going to say 70 TV spots and 250 other engagements with wow. journals. So at this point, all you have to do is press the button. Just add, wa- and it all add water. Rolling out. <laughs> well, well done then. Well done. Um, the event on Monday, quote, uh, the title, on the future of the Marine Corps, colon, assessing force design 2030. First of all, um, uh, why do that? How did that come about, and how did you arrive at the panel that that you um, that you had on Monday? Yeah. Um, well, I put this event together because this was a, a major issue in the national security community. People have talked about it as an intellectual civil war in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. and you know, CSIS is in the business of discussing key national security issues so this you know, fit in the, you know, the precepts of the uh, the think tank uh, and I would say also that I know General Van Riper very well and you know he and I had been talking for um, many months and uh, so I suggested doing this and he was quite enthusiastic about it uh, so that's and then I, I pitched it to my hierarchy knowing that this was very sensitive and uh, they were quite enthusiastic uh, but were emphatic that it had to be even-handed which i which which was absolutely right i I was very comfortable with that so when i put together the panel uh talked to general van riper and general zinni uh, and then i wanted to get people on the other side who would be supportive of what general berger is trying to do uh, Bob Work was a clear uh, uh, fit there, you know, when he was in the think tanks and then as deputy secretary was very enthusiastic about, you know, long range precision strike and a focus on uh, the Western Pacific. Uh, And Dov Zakheim is associated with CSIS. Uh, I brought uh, him in also because I knew that he, um, you know, had said some supportive things. I I thought he was actually going to be a little more supportive of Berger uh, and uh, Force Design 2030 that he was. I mean, he was very balanced, which was great. Yes. Uh, I, I didn't want work to feel like he was, you know, hanging out there, but I think that worked out uh, okay. I, I will say that I approached um, Headquarters Marine Corps about participating, and at one point it looked like there might be some active duty generals who would be on the panel. But the Marine Corps finally came back and said, no, from their point of view, this was a subtle issue and they weren't going to debate it. How did you try to craft um, the format of, of the presentation? Well, the, f- the format that we use is pretty standard at CSIS. We uh, give each of the participants of the panelists some time to make opening remarks. In this case, I gave them each about five to seven minutes. Then the moderator, me in this case, would ask some questions on issues that either hadn't come up or needed some clarification because of their high visibility. And then we would open it up to questions and answers from the audience. So, so the, the, the format was, was pretty standard. We know CSIS does a lot of these kinds of events. Now, you know, they eased off of course, during the pandemic, but now, you know, we probably do, you know, two or three of those kind of events a day. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty well 
worn path, a pretty well-established format. The one thing I've made a note to myself is to um, be sure I know which camera is the one that's on. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed in the video, I'm looking at the wrong camera. Uh, and sort of annoyed at our IT people that didn't have to like a red light or something, but that's there was lesson. no there was no red light. There was no red light. Uh, so a lesson learned for next time. There you go. There you go. Um, what su- what surprised you, um, if anything, about uh, about the forum? I, I, the thing uh, I guess I was surprised. Um, I, and again, let, let me just for just for the sake of clarity. I believe Mark was the first person I saw um, in a, in a large public way write something that took on Forest Design twenty thirty. Now that may or may not be true, but my recollection, he's one of the first people, and I think the piece was entitled "Not So Fast Marine Corps." And um, um, so, uh, Mark obviously has followed this issue for a while. Um, I'm fairly close with that. Yes, Mark? Yes. No, that's right. Um, and you know, the, that first piece I did in War on the Rocks was, I, I don't know if it was the first, but it was certainly one of the first to raise some questions. And then later, uh, when the Marine Corps put some more information out, I did a extensive analysis uh, of the force design. So, so yes, that is, that is true. And... Oh. I will say, you know, I think if you look at, watch the video, right. I think I'm pretty even-handed no. about the questions yeah. and my my treatment of my panelists, even though I have strong personal views. Um, um, and no, no, uh, just, just just so, you know, as somebody who has participated in these kind of things, as somebody who tries to moderate things on occasion, um, I thought you, I thought you did a, a, a great job. I thought that that everybody, you know, was given, uh, there was nobody who had seemed to have an upper edge. They all made their points and they're all obviously very intelligent, uh, guys with a ton of experience. And I thought, I, I thought, no, I thought you did very, very well. I thought it was fitting, uh, for, uh, to hang CSIS's name on it. So well done. What though, sitting there with, with all your experiences and whatnot, uh, did anything surprise you? I guess nothing really surprised me, but I was um, um, taken by the passion of the panelists. Uh, uh, you know, they all they believe in their views very strongly. You, when you watch the video, you can see Work is very passionate about his views, uh, as is General Zinni and General Van Riper. Uh, uh, Dove Zakheim was a little more uh, moderate, uh, you know, being the, you know, a strategist and a, uh, not being a Marine. Uh, so that that part, I mean, it's not that I didn't expect that, but seeing that reinforced you know, my, my you know, um, realization that you know, how much people, you know, the panelists felt about this. And that was good. I mean, it gave a, a, a tone of passion to one of these discussion panels, which are very often at CSIS, you know, about important issues and, but, you know, sort of talking heads speaking intellectually about important topics and not, you know, really having their, you know, the, the full force of their uh, personalities and emotions uh, involved. And you could see that 
Uh, in fact, you, you probably couldn't see, you know, some of the body language. I'm, I was sitting next to Bob Work, and you know, I mean, his foot was tapping the entire time. You know, he re- he wanted to jump up and make some more points. And in fact, at the end, he said, "This should have gone longer. I had more points I wanted to make." Uh, and the other panelists uh, made the, the same uh, uh, comments. Uh, uh, the one downside of the passion was that. Uh, you know, about 45 minutes into the event, I lost control of my four stars, uh, who are hard to corral in the best of times. Uh, and uh, uh, so, they, you know, they started sort of arguing with each other, which, I mean, in retrospect, I think was perfectly fine. Um, you know, I was trying to get through the questions, you know, trying to grab control of the event back. And you know, eventually I succeeded, but um, they were out of control for a little while. But you it was know, a good exchange. Me- I, I would tell you one of the things that surprised me is that I thought I must not be paying attention because it sounds like force design is a much more evolving concept than it was ever presented to be. It sounded like the vision that we, we were told that was going to be for the Marine Corps in terms of structure and whatnot seems to be much more fluid these days. Um, is that is that something that's new? Um because I didn't, I don't recall it being presented like that. I'll give you a couple of answers on that. First, I think if you went to General Berger and asked him that question, he would say no. It was always intended to be fluid. We, the Marine Corps always intended to do experimentation uh, and um, uh, war games to refine some of the concepts. And to be fair to him, if you read the original documents, there are many places where they say, you know, we're still figuring this out. On the other hand, when you read that original document, I mean, it, 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 there are many places where it says, this is the answer. You know, the answer is no tanks. Uh, not, you know, we're thinking about no tanks or, you know, we're, we're, we're heading, no, the answer is no tanks. So there are many places where it's absolutely emphatic uh, about what the final answer is. And then if you look at force design, 2030, the, an, the annual update, which I'm actually holding in my hand right now, since we're not... We don't have a video connection here. You can't quite see it. Uh, It just came out like two weeks ago. Um, It has really shifted some of the arguments. It's reinforced uh, many of the major arguments, but it clearly is responding to some of the criticisms that outsiders like the retired generals are making. A major one is about the focus of this force design if you look at the early documents it's all about china and we, we went through and actually counted in the documents how many times china how many times china was mentioned and then how many times other countries are mentioned and you know for example and i think of it maybe it was the original document uh, you know china's mentioned six times indo paycom is mentioned six times russia's mentioned twice uh you know iran once very china focused well One of the criticisms that the generals have made, the retired generals, is that the strategy is too focused on China, that the United that the Marine Corps uh, has global responsibilities, that the American people expect it to respond to global uh, um, uh, contingencies, global crises, and that force design is too focused on China. You read the update and it says repeatedly, this is a global concept, not just China. Uh, now, they don't change any of the things they're doing. They're changing the packaging here, but they're clearly responding to some of the criticism that they received. Um, 
just as a as an aside, another place where they they do a little um, backpedaling is on talent management. You know, they published actually a separate talent management twenty thirty plan, and they, you know there are a lot of sensible things in there about you know using IT tools better and fitting Marines better with billets and giving them maybe a little more um, latitude and choosing billets and the other recruiting improvement. I mean, a lot of things that are very uh, sensible, but one of the big things that went the sort of the you know red rocket up in the sky was the possibility of bringing people into the Marine Corps at mid-level uh, majors and gunnery sergeants without going through boot camp or any military skills training. Um, and of course that to many people that struck at the, you know, the foundations of, of the Marine Corps, and now they're backpedaling on that, saying, "Well, we have no immediate plans to do that. You know, it'd be very limited." And um, uh, I doubt if they will ever do that. Uh, uh, the idea is out there in the national security community. So the Marine Corps didn't come up with this, you know, entirely on its own. But it, you know, that is so fundamental to, you know, what it is to be a Marine. The idea of going through boot camp and having the military skills. Uh, uh, now, some people, let me just continue on that theme for a second, you know, some people pointed to the um, the, the, the band, uh, the you know, president's own Washington band, uh, as a, um, you know, as a precedent. It's a very poor precedent because the band, you know, although they are technically in the Marine Corps, they, they have a whole separate section of the U.S. code that uh, uh, structures how they operate. They are, you know, they may be called Marines. They do no other duties. They, you know, only perform in, you know, uh, uh, for headquarters in Washington. Uh, and regular band members, you know, like if you go down to Second Marine, you know, Division Band, they all went to boot camp. No, uh, they all went to they're, yeah. they're Marines, and you can. Right. I remember in Ramadi in 2004. There's uh, there's great pictures of of them playing um, the General Mattis's last last night there. Um, uh, during the evening, the band got together and they played the Tongan Marines that were there sang, and then the band played. And so you have the, these First Marine Division uh, band, um, you know, male and female Marines with their shotguns, their M4s slung over their back, right, in their utilities, um, with all their PPE on playing. <laughs> playing. It's a it's a great it's a great combat photograph of. You know, and their role, and their I think their secondary mission is uh, protection of the uh, the division CP. Yep, yep, yep. And they did that Desert Storm, and uh, right. uh, and I, I think, and everyone, as you say, you know, everyone's comfortable with that. They went through boot camp. They've been through the infantry skills training. They belong in the Marine Corps. Right. Uh, now, if they had come in off the street as a gunnery sergeant with no military skills, you know, that's where people draw a line. Anyway, so I think the Marine Corps. Is, backing up that I, that's a sort of a, got me sidetracked there um so you you have seen some changes uh, you know there's still more experimentation going on so i said marine corps would argue it's always been in there i think parts of what they're doing are uh, are not going to be changed they, they're locked in and they are changing some of the rhetoric on the locked in part let me just add one more thing there and then we'll go to the next issue but uh, General Berger has made it clear there's no going back. You know, he got rid of the tanks, not just 
I was thinking that you know the Marine Corps would put them into storage out there at 29 Palms or some someplace just in case they might need it. No, the Marine Corps got rid of them, sent them off to the Army, and the Army I think is selling them. I'm going to say selling them to Poland, but uh, and the Marine Corps cannon artillery that from the deactivated artillery uh, units uh, are now in Ukraine. That's the the M777s that we gave Ukraine. Those came from the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So there's no going back. Is is his message? All right. So, so let me ask you about surprises. Then I want to ask you about the future. Your opinion. What what you take away from all this? So, um, any did anything that gets said yesterday um, surprise you, or did it all run true to form? Well, it it ran true to form in the sense that. Both sides said pretty much what I expected them to say. You know, they've they've both sides have written extensively about their views. The gen- retired generals have written extensively. Uh, Bob Work just that morning had come up with his own, uh, uh, you know, commentary piece making his points. And of course, General Berger has been quite, um, uh, 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 you know, has written extensively and put a lot of information. So, you know, both sides I think have made their positions clear. I think they are maneuvering to get an upper hand with Congress. I think the retired generals would like Congress to put some breaks on some of the changes um, until more study is done. There's also maneuvering for the next commandant to see if maybe that person might be more amenable to um, yeah, some changes in uh, the concept um, um, one thing, let me step back on this debate and talk about the retired generals. Okay. Um, I mean, full disclosure, you know, I've been dealing with them for uh, several months and have you know, provided some analysis uh, to them. So, you know, I'm not a disinterested spectator here. Uh, but, you know, they it was a couple of months ago, I'm going to say maybe November when they started sort of getting organized because of their concerns regarding forest design 2030. Many of them regarded it as an existential issue for the Marine Corps. And General Van Riper actually said that at the event because I believe, yeah, the way they were talking about, I think Bob work said it, this was a custody fight, the grandparent between the grandparents and the parents and General Van Riper says, it's not a custody fight. We're fighting for the life of the baby. And yes. so he used his own his own example and and made the point that you just you just made uh, very vividly for those of us watching. Right, right. Also vivid was the the metaphor of the Marine Corps as a dysfunctional family, which <laughs> been with us for a while. Um, uh, uh, but the generals started coalescing you know, with their concerns that this was an existential issue that you know, um, uh, talent management, of course, bringing in Marines who. Uh, bringing people into the Marine Corps who had not been through boot camp and all the military training, you know, the possibility of not of stepping away from combined arms and global engagement, uh, the and, in, the inability to uh, respond across the range of military operations, um, and again the um, the bias for the least likely um, event on the horizon yep. and all in on that. And then ultimately, and I, I'll quote General Heckel from what, two weeks ago, 
Yep. We could not get there. And this is this is the fear, right? We are not going to be called upon. We are not going to be included. We will be marginalized. And at some point, somebody will say, we don't need them. Thank you. Well, that's right. And that's when you talk to the retired generals, that's their concern. You know, that they're, if there's a, um, you know, a, a conflict in Korea, you know, the Marine Corps will end up doing rear area security. You know, the, the aircraft might be stripped, stripped out. Maybe some of the missile artillery be stripped out. The infantry will do rear area security because it's just too light. Um, uh, and then people are going to look at this and say, you know, what happened to the Marine Corps, you know, of close combat, you know, locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. Uh, and, and I mean, just to build on that, they're also concerned about the cultural issue which is not an issue to people outside the Marine Corps, but inside the Marine Corps it is. And that is, you know, as your force focuses more and more on long range precision strike and centers around artillery and aviation and uses the infantry basically as base security for those capabilities, what, what will the culture of the Marine Corps look like in 25 years when, you know, the infantry is just, um, you know, essentially a kind of base security. So, Anyway, the generals, retired generals, a lot of these concerns, they started coming together, emailing with each other. They started writing papers and had, they had a couple of meetings with General Berger. They regarded the meetings as not very productive. The Berger, uh, to his credit, you know, met with the generals, but indicated he was not going to make any uh, changes, did not, in their opinion, engage in a discussion. So that's when they, you started seeing these op-eds come out, these commentaries uh, Bing West has come out, and uh, Jim Webb, of course, uh, but then the, of the generals, you know, several of them have published some uh, some things um, that were op-ed in the um, Washington Post, for example, and Wall Street Journal. Uh, so they decided that they were going to take a more public stance to, to indicate that there was a debate here. And one of the things I should say is that General Berger did an interview for the Washington Post, and he said, you know, He's, he, and he was asked, you know, is this a controversial change? And he said, no, you'd be surprised. Everybody's on board with this. And, of course, the retired generals were just, you know, livid. Uh, so that was another reason. They and, and, and he they, also said that the Marine Corps could to uh, could answer the call for any mission that, that the Marine Corps is given, which I think a lot of people raised their eyebrows at and said, really? Well, and that that's true. And I'll come back to that in a second. But uh, – uh, but one of the major um, um, uh, desires of the retired generals is to, to show just that there is a debate here, that there are different points of view, that these need to be debated uh, and discussed. Uh, and, you know, this is not just a, um, you know, a consensus across the Marine Corps uh, community. Uh, on the question of you know, sort of global employment and the range of military operations, uh, General Berger and, and many others, General Heckel, made the same comment that the Marine Corps is not uh, stepping back from that. On the other hand, you've, there have been a lot of Marines uh, talking mostly off the record, although sometimes on the record, saying uh, the Marine Corps is not going to participate in operations in Korea or Europe or Middle East. That's for the Army. The Army is big. The Army has tanks. Uh those are uh, uh, areas for the Army to focus. We're going to focus on uh, the Western Pacific. 
And I think the other statement was, we are no longer a closed with force, if I'm not mistaken. You know? And, um, and that is, <laughs> that strikes right at the heart. And then, but again, so I contrast that with some of the stuff I heard yesterday. One meth is still going to be the heavy right hook. Explain that to me. I, does the Marine Corps have a right hook anymore? Once you divest of the tube artillery uh, that we've di that we've shed, once we divest of the armor and the heavy bridging and things like that, um, does the Marine Corps even own a right hook anymore? I, I I think there are people that would debate and say no, the Marine Corps doesn't. It is a light organization. It is a long range fire providers, and the infantry is is, is security forces. I I, I don't know. Um, so I, I guess I would ask you that question. Is that what the Marine Corps is? Because that's what I, I thought it was going to be uh, based on what I had read. And I, and I think that's an accurate description of certainly of the concerns that the retired generals have. You know, they uh, have said that the Marine Corps is stepping away from combined arms that has been a hallmark of uh, the Marine Corps since the Second World War and, and of its great strengths. Uh, General Heckel made an interesting comment on this. He said, the notion that combined arms is aviation and cannon artillery and tanks is old think. New think is combined arms as information operations, cyber, and space. Now, my response to that is, information operations, cyber, and space have never killed anybody. Um, but I think that is when the Marine Corps thinks about being, you know, a, a combined arms lethal force, you know, that is the new thinking that it's cyberspace and information operations. Wow. So you can see what, um, you can see how, uh, important this discussion is to a lot of people. The fundamental nature of what the Marine Corps is, uh, is open to interpretation. Um, let me ask you this. Um, General Berger is not going to be able to uh, get much of this done other than the divest portion and the blueprints, um, uh, some of the education stuff uh, on his watch. What kind of Marine Corps does he bequeath to his successor? You know, great question. <clears throat> uh, you know, he's going to bequeath a Marine Corps that is in transition. The divestments will mostly have occurred. A lot of the divestments in the artillery have already occurred. Of course, the tanks are already gone. The bridging is gone. So that part is done. The personnel uh, will have come down, be down to 172 I don't think the Marine Corps is going to go any lower, but that's not impossible. They've signaled that they might. Uh, but the new capabilities aren't quite there yet. They will buy some high Mars and some of the missiles, but uh, and then there is this nemesis, which is on the cusp of deployment, to be fair to them. But they're trying also to bring in like longer range missiles. The problem with uh, nemesis, you know, the, the anti-ship missile is that it uses the uh, naval strike missile, which only has a range of a little more than 100 miles. So it's, it just doesn't go out all that far. They want to bring in some longer range missiles like perhaps the Army's PRISM, which is uh, coming along, but it's not fielded yet, 
maybe tomahawk, which the Navy has, but uh, needs to be adapted for a, a ground launch. The on the UAVs, they're they're not there. They're they're buying uh, uh, MQ9 uh, Reapers, and the Marine Corps talks about you know we're going to have three squadrons, so we're we're good on on uh, uh, unmanned aircraft. And I point out you're buying 18 UAVs. You know, this is not a big force. Uh, and, and I think what they're looking for is a follow-on that could be launched from ship. And, then, and that's very understandable why they're doing that. But I keep showing these graphs about, you know, how many UAVs, how many armed UAVs the services have. You know, the Air Force is up around 350, the Army's at 270, and the Marine Corps is at, I think, six. Uh, making the point that the Marine Corps is you know, way behind here. Uh, so I think many of these new capabilities, some of them will be will be on the cusp of coming in. Uh, many of them are still further out there. So you know the Marine Corps is in this in this window where arguably it's you know sort of neither. You know it's not the old Marine Corps. It's not quite the new Marine Corps yet. Either uh, the MLRs, you know, they've stood up one. It's sort of experimental. They talk about two more. Um, you know, they haven't quite done that yet, but, you know, again, that's a organization that's in uh, sort of being defined. And, and Zinni, of course, at the panel hammered on that. He said, why, why, why isn't it just a MAGTAF? You know, what was wrong with the MAGTAF concept that, you know, you couldn't develop a MLR kind of capability out of the MAGTAF, which is a you know, pretty fair question. So it will be a Marine Corps in transition. That, that that he turns over um right. let's talk the um the transition I, I have yet to hear um much discussion from the secretary of the navy on force design um the law the light amphibious warship is not making the cut for the united states navy relative to shipbuilding so it keeps getting pushed right yep how how does this ultimately work then? And yeah. and then and and I guess here's another question that that has been asked: uh, the logistics, the movement of these ships. The Philippines just had an election. Uh, they have a new president named Marcos. My from everything I've read, the Chinese say that he's moving closer to us. We say, oh no, we still have good relations with the Philippines. My instinct is that um, the Chinese money and the American money—that's a lot of money. Right, and so it would behoove the uh, Philippine, the Filipinos, um, to become Finland, right, and Sweden, and steer some kind of middle ground and allow all that money to, to dump into their nation as they are wooed by both sides and really not take a side, which leaves us looking for a place to locate um, these forces, and knowing that anybody who plays host to them is going to get very quickly in the crosshairs of the Chinese. Um, talk to me about the littoral combat ships, um, the, the South China Sea region, and, and, and I, I don't, I, the survivability of all of this. Um, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, let me start with the amphibious fleet because uh, I've described that as a dumpster fire. Uh, <laughs> The, the the ship you're you're referring to is the light amphibious warship. Uh, you know the light amphibious warship is you know grew out of this 
Force Design 2030, ideas be a small uh, amphib, really quite small, much smaller than the LSTs that you know were around in the 80s and into the into the 90s. And this was the ship that would you know, pick up pieces of uh, a littoral uh, regiment on Okinawa and move it to a an island, you know, in the Pacific, uh, not doing global deployments, not doing six month you know, forward deployments because it's just too small for that, but just point A to point B. And the idea was that they would build a lot of these notionally about 30, relatively inexpensive, but, uh, and, you know, not having a lot of defensive armament, but just being, you know, just from point A to point B. The problem on, that Marine Corps has got itself into is that uh, they saw this LAW as additional to the large amphibs. So they talked about an amphibious fleet of, you know, 65 ships, you know, 30 plus big amphibs, 30 plus light amphibious warships. The, 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 they got themselves in trouble, though, because in the initial documents, General Berger said, we are no longer going to size the amphibious fleet for a two-meb amphibious operation. Those kinds of operations are not possible. And modern warfare because of long-range anti-ship missiles, uh, we will come up with some different construct. And by the way, they're too big, they're too expensive, uh, they're too vulnerable, we're gonna go with this LAW. Well, the Navy and the Office of Secretary of Defense said, okay, we'll buy off on that, we'll stop buying big amphibs and we'll buy these little amphibs. And the Marine Corps saying, well, no, 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 we meant both. But the pushback they're getting is, is that, you know, I know OSD is saying, hey, if you're telling us that these ships are not suitable for wartime operations and are only useful for peacetime presence, it doesn't make sense to spend tens of billions of dollars on something that you don't think, you don't think, have a wartime mission. So in this latest shipbuilding plan, the latest five-year plan, uh, the Navy buys uh, two amphibs in 23 and stops doesn't buy any more big amphibs because you know, from their point of view that's you know that's all you need so that would be a, a total fleet of about 24 the marine corps of course says the requirements 38 you know fiscally constrained goal was 33 uh, the other problem is that the law has been pushed to the right so now i think the first one i'm going to say is 27 uh uh, in part because, again, it hasn't really been defined, you know, how big it's going to be. Um, you know, personally, I think the Marine Corps could use a small amphoot, but it should be something along the size of the LSTs that is ocean going that could be used for the six month deployments. Um, but it's also smaller because the other amphibs have been getting larger. There's a space there, I think, that uh, where a small amphib could be very helpful. Uh, but that's not the vision for the LAW that's you know, at least was initially put out there. So right now, the Marine Corps has the worst of both worlds. It's not getting the LAW. It's not getting large amphibs either. Congress will probably add a couple, but um, that's why I call it a dumpster fire. Uh, break. You asked about the Philippines. And that's another great question. The Philippines and Taiwan. In Vietnam. The, in Vietnam. 
You don't have Vietnam, to cover you don't have to cover all of them, but because right. uh, I know we're at the end of our time, and I don't want to I don't want to violate that. But right. I'm just uh, curious because one of the criticisms is is in Force Design 2030 the employment concept. We take a magic wand out and we fairy dust away the logistics, um, which you know is is not a small footprint. Uh, you you fairy dust the uh, medeva- medical evacuation. Of, of of wounded sick and what and other people that need to be medevaced and this is still quote unquote an evolving piece of all of this and then you don't have a host country in the region that says oh yeah we'll take them because if they do the chinese will be all over them like the proverbial hobo on a ham sandwich uh, and it will not be pleasant so i i'm curious about your thoughts on all that yeah one of the uh, points that, that the retired generals were making is that they wanted to see what the wargaming looked like. The Marine Corps has argued that they've wargamed this concept extensively. The wargame support the concepts and the structures of uh, FD 2030, but no one's really seen you know, what the wargames look like, what the assumptions are because they're classified. One of my suspicions is that the Marine Corps places these teams, these MLR teams, in the Philippines, on Taiwan, in Vietnam, before the war begins. Because once the war begins, it's very hard to get into those zones because they're you know, so heavily uh, protected by the Chinese. How do you do that without the host nation allowing that? And that's the problem. <laughs> that is, <laughs> it's it's, it's an, right. what I call an heroic assumption. I mean, you, just, I mean, you mentioned the Philippines and the notion that the Philippines would let the U.S. in before a conflict begins is not impossible, but they'll be very reluctant to do that and provoke the Chinese. Uh, the Taiwanese would have us in there tomorrow if, if we would be willing to go, but you know our State Department would be jumping up and down, pointing out that this would be very provocative to the Chinese and that if you were in a crisis situation, that might be the step that would convince them to launch now uh, so again not impossible that, that these forces could go in before the conflict begins but if that's if your concept is dependent on that then you know we need to have a serious conversation about what to expect before the war and how the run-up to the war is is uh, going to go uh, then there's a whole set of questions about uh, you know, logistics can you really keep these small teams supplied are they really going to be viable you know the at the basic school they're teaching lieutenants to live off the land and you know how to i know kill and skin a goat uh, which is you know dramatic and sort of a fun thing for lieutenants it's totally impractical in the sense that the problem you have on these islands and supply is not food these islands produce food you can get food and feed your people the problem is you can't go down to the supermarket and buy um, a harpoon missile. Uh, that has to come in uh, uh, by you know military lift of some sort. You know you can't buy um, fuel because of course you'll you'll you know suck the uh, uh, civilian economy dry very quickly. Uh, you know you can't get munitions. You can't get all that stuff. And that stuff's very heavy. Uh, and uh, you know, live, and you can't live off the land. So the notion that they're going to live off the land, I think, is uh, delusional, frankly. Um, and and to be fair to the commandant, 
in the update. He says that is the long pole in the tent. That's the thing that they have to solve because it's still uh, unresolved. All right. Um, so, first of all, I want to thank you for the wide-ranging discussion we've had. Um, next question. Are you going to do another version of this? Uh, is this now settled law? Um, Congress doesn't, I mean, it's one of the things that I, I found surprising was given the people involved and the rank involved, the number involved, I, I thought, well, it'll be interesting to see if Congress even holds a hearing about this. And they have, cho nobody has shown an interest in, in having a nuanced discussion about Force Design 2030 and some of the objections raised, which I, I find very interesting um, that, that all of this has evidently fallen on congressional deaf ears. Are you planning on doing any, will, um, will current events dictate uh, a future schedule for you, or are you planning to do other things relative to Force Design 2030? Uh, well, the first one about congressional hearings is a great question. I mean, it's such a great question. <laughs> I'm going to send it off to General Van Riper uh, uh, that that should be the focus of the, the general's uh, uh, arguments on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, to, to do the sort of same thing on Capitol Hill that we just did with CSIS. And again, to have a discussion uh, about this, you know, the Congress in the end, you know, may not be willing to make changes or put the brakes on, but, you know, these, these issues deserve to be uh, discussed in uh, public. Uh, on um, 2030, I'm probably going to do an analysis of the uh, update, making many of the points that I just made to you. One of the things I find is that once I've thought these things through and written them down to talk to journalists and on uh, radio and TV programs, I might as well just then turn it into a written commentary since I've done half the work. Um, <laughs> uh, in terms of another CSIS panel, actually, after the panel we just had, you know, the, many of the panelists, several of them, said, you know, why don't we do this again? And I said, you know, we, we, may, we may well do that. I mean, uh, you know, I want to see how you know, so things play out, you know, maybe, um, you know, when it comes time, you know, the next commandant is named, you know, maybe that would be the time to, you know, put, have, put a panel together, you know, issues for the next commandant, you know, pitch it that way. Um, um, so, so we'll see. I mean, this, we'll this see. is this, yeah. This this is this is an issue that's not going away. It's going right. to be continually uh, in the front of the intellectual discussion of the Marine Corps, and you know, I'll, I'll be participating in that. And I think CSIS, CSIS will also. Well, and again, this uh, who become who is the next comrade of the Marine Corps? Will is will that person be a disciple of Force Design 2030? Or will that person say, you know, uh, what, what's the name of the the airborne tank, the lighter tank? Um, will that person show up and say, well, look, I've, I've watched the debate. I participated in some of it. Here's, here's the way I see force design, you know, 2030 evolving under my commandancy. What do you call that? What do you call your reign as a commandant? <laughs> yeah. Is there a word for it? I don't I, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word. You know? My reign under my reign. Um, this is what, this is what I term, see. So yeah, my term is commandant. my term. There you go. Uh, so, um, whoever becomes a commandant is going to get a Marine Corps that has, is divested, um, 
and uh, there's promises of uh, of things that are going to appear, but that person will have four budgets uh, to further define what the Marine Corps is in the future, and then the the commandant that follows him or her will will have more decisions to make. Um, so, and those are obviously those are big decisions. So, um, any thoughts on that, Mark? I mean, because uh, this is not settled science yet. Well, it's not. And uh, I'll give you one last thought on, uh, you know, what might come next. You know, we'll see who the next commandant is. You know, I think the betting is on the ACMAC, you know, who is quite close to General Berger. But, of course, you know, once, you know, um, someone becomes, you know, the commandant or, uh, you know, the head of an organization, they can do, you know, what they want and, you know, maybe get a little more latitude. Uh, one of the things the generals have argued is, uh, that they don't necessarily want to bring back tanks, but they believe that the Marine Corps needs that capability. A, an armored, uh, mobile uh, system with firepower. The Army, as you mentioned, is fielding a what you might call a light tank. I think it's called a mobile protected system. It's not a full-up uh, Abrams tank. It has a 105 gun, uh, but it would do a lot of the things that marines needed armor to do you know it could it could uh, provide them protection in a fight like fallujah where tanks were uh, very helpful um, because 105 guns now uh, have some uh, improved mun munitions you know you get a lot of capability of that gun that you, know, you didn't get before so you don't necessarily have to go up to a full 120 millimeter gun uh, so i think that you know uh, another commandant might might go in that direction and say, all right, we got rid of the big tank, the gas guzzler, we, we're, we're doing the smaller tank to get that capability. Uh, and, and I think that the retired generals would be very pleased with that. You know, they would, they would sign up for that um, uh, quite quickly, arguing that, you know, getting lighter is not a bad thing, but you need the capability. Right. All right. So stay tuned. This, this discussion will, uh, will happen for a number of years in the future. Mark, first of all, uh, congratulations on the event on Monday. For those of you listening, the link is um, is uh, is in the podcast. So if you click on the podcast, you'll see the link to the video. Um, I think uh, if you, um, well, if you're hearing this, you've obviously listened to this, but I would, I would watch the video um, before I listen to to this discussion, which is uh, a bit of a discussion about that video and and that discussion, which is which which was very, um, I was a little bit surprised that uh, uh, Colonel Work um, described Force Design twenty thirty as much more pliant and evolving than I had heard. Uh, I was very this. Uh, uh, do you say? Is his name Dev? How do you say that? Dove Zackheim. D-O-V Zackheim. Yeah. Dove had good good and bad things to say about everybody. And then I think uh, General Sidney and General Van Riper played two to form. Uh, if you've read what they've written, they essentially enunciated that uh, with, uh, with uh, the passion that they always uh, get involved with these kind of things for. So, Mark, congratulations on... Uh, on I, you know, again, uh, making sure these things are, are done in public and, and front and center. And I, I certainly appreciate you always taking time for me and, and all Marine Radio and the people that listen to this. So thank you very much and good luck. Well, thanks for having me on the program. Look forward to doing this again at some point. 
that'll do it on a Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Um, interesting stuff. The Mensa Brothers and I will take up our own criticism of this thing on Friday. And I, again, to me, there's been a process foul here. And I would tell you that General Zinni's and Ben Riper are absolutely right. There's a combat developmental development process that the Marine Corps has. We have a combat development center. Okay. And General Berger violated that. To make matters worse, he made pretty important decisions based on that relative to force structure. Over 200 aviation platforms going to be lost to the Marine Corps. Gave it away. Sent it home. And now we're going to go back and revisit this stuff and take a look at it. And this is what he could hand to the next commandant. You know, you just heard Mark Kansian talk about amphibious shipping as a dumpster fire. What the fuck, over? So anyway, on that note, um, I'll see you on Friday. Uh, again, want to thank Mark Kansian for having that forum. All those gentlemen for appearing on it. And then for Mark coming on to talk about not only uh, the forum itself, but also uh, his thoughts on Russia which uh, is, gets to be more interesting by the day. Um, so, have a great Wednesday. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. See you on Friday. I'm out. <laughs>